Radio Mano Papachango. first heard of today's guest it may have been through the great Duncan Trussell uh, but in any case about a year and a half ago probably <clears throat> somebody put me in touch with Dr. Bruce Damer and we exchanged a few emails and um, I looked him up or whoever introduced me to him told me a little bit about him and he sounded really fascinating to be honest with you I was probably a little intimidated um because he's the kind of ultra high IQ person who um, can be difficult sometimes to engage in conversation because it's almost like they're speaking another language or their knowledge is so specialized that it's very difficult to sort of pull out the, um, the applicability of it or to make it personal in a way that listeners who aren't astrophysicists or um, interest, you know, particularly interested in the chemical origins of life or whatever the subject matter we're discussing, that, that those listeners are going to be brought along into the conversation. So part of it's probably just personal that I was like, oh, he's too smart, I'll sound stupid or I'll feel stupid. But part of it is also that sometimes those sorts of People aren't especially great podcast guests just because they're they live in a world that's so remote and unusual that it can be hard for people to relate to them. Uh, Bruce Damer is not that kind of person. Bruce is incredibly relatable, a humble, sweet, kind, mysterious, mystical, just lovely lovely man and I'm so happy that I got around finally to meeting him uh, we tried to hook it up uh, we actually he came to a talk I gave at Burning Man and that's the first time I met him personally and at that point I knew that whatever reservations I may have had in the past were ridiculous and I couldn't wait to sit in a room with him and and chat for a while um, but still it took us some time to get it together because he travels a lot he was in various parts of the world, uh, doing field research in uh, which you'll hear about in this conversation into the origins of life. I'm talking the origins. I'm talking where non-organic, inorganic chemicals first made the step into what the the sort of processes that. Um, in retrospect, we now recognize as life, um, processing energy, self-replication, um, certain cycles that from where we sit now, we recognize to be the origins of life. Uh, this is a fascinating conversation. And if if you're thinking, oh, it's, you know, technical and scientific and you know, I'm not really into that. Give it a chance because that's there's so much more going on. Um, Bruce is very open and 
very intimate about his own life story and how some of the profound challenges that he's faced as a human being have both informed him and motivated his investigations. Uh, in the sort of intellectual tradition, uh, Bruce, to me, lines up with people like Copernicus and Kepler, who were mystics, who were uh, alchemists, and lived in a world of mystery and it's sort of a like a scientific shamanism where shamans move between worlds they they move into the higher or lower world seeking information that can help them that they can bring back to this world the middle world where you and I are right now and they can apply that information to help heal people that's what shamans do typically and it feels very much like what Bruce does. Bruce enters an altered state uh, is one way of thinking of it. It may be an alternate universe is another way. It may just be that he connects with a dimension that most of us are unaware of or a, a frequency or a resonance. I won't try to explain it because it's probably inexplicable and I haven't experienced it and Bruce does a very good job of explaining it himself. Suffice to say that this is not a technical conversation. This is a very personal and um, beautiful conversation, and I'm honored that Bruce is as open and trusting as he is and is fucking brilliant. So, Bruce Damer, coming up this episode. Uh, before I get into that, though, a few things. Um, another brilliant, wonderful person just died a few days ago, John Perry Barlow. I never met him personally, but uh, my good friend Tal Ruspoli is a good friend of John's. And uh, so we had a you know very one-step-away kind of relationship, and, and we've exchanged emails and uh, talked about getting together and never got around to it unfortunately, and he's been sick for a while, so um, I didn't want to barge in on that anyway. But we're both in the monogamish film, if any of you have seen that, Tal Ruspoli's film. And he actually played a pretty pivotal role in my life because years ago I read an essay that he published, uh, I think it was Nerve.com, and uh, that essay really crystallized some things for me and set me on a path that I'm still on today, intellectually. Um, and that was the path of acknowledging that some people are not sexually monogamous by nature and that there's nothing inherently shameful about that. Now, I sort of felt it, and I was coming to the realization concerning myself, and uh, I was at the end of a relationship, a very painful ending of a lovely relationship with a lovely person who I've spoken about on this podcast before who remains a very close friend, more than a friend, a sister, really, 
Um, and I was doing a lot of soul searching and I came across this essay. It's called a lady's man and shameless. And, uh, he, it's a short essay. I don't know, 500, 700 words, something like that. And he goes through his own experience uh, with marriage and tragedy and loss and where he came to at the end of his, well, the, you know, 15, 20 years from the end of his life, but later in his life. And the way he expressed it was so clear and honorable that it really struck a nerve in me. It, the, I'll read a, a couple paragraphs from the beginning. Um, he says, I'm finally ready to declare myself. I am a ladies' man, a womanizer, a libertine, a rake, a rogue, a roué, a goddamn running loose dog. I'd admit to being a lecher, but that word implies a solipsistic predation that I hope never applies to any of my relations with the mysterious sex. This is about something more sacred than anything a drooling wanker could appreciate. This is about worship. From the time testosterone kicked in, I have knelt at the altar of that which is female in this world. I love women. What I love in them is something that moves and must be free to do so. I love their smells, their textures, their complexities, the inexhaustible variety of their psychic weather patterns. I love to flirt with them, dance with them, and discourse with them endlessly on the differences between men and women. I love to make love. Uh, he goes on. I, I, I recommend the essay. Uh, maybe I'll I'll uh, post the whole thing. It's online, but I had a lot of trouble finding it. So I'll post the whole text in the the show notes to this episode. So you can find it at uh, tangentiallyspeaking.com. Bruce Damer episode. I'll post it in there. Uh, and I'll read the end of it. The, the last section is called The Infinity of Love. So this is after he goes through his own experiences and um, and different f types of love that he'd felt throughout his life. He says, all said, you're probably wondering why any woman would want to become emotionally or physically involved with a man whose promiscuity is so freely confessed. Of course, many of them don't. I eliminate a lot of opportunity by wearing my Don Juan warning placard so visibly. Even then, the hesitant don't leave me entirely bereft. But most of the resistance to becoming involved with a self-admitted playboy has to do with that all-important female perception of being special. It is hard to feel that knowing there are others out there. It, sorry, it is hard to feel that knowing there are others are, out there. But there is an answer to this, and finding it has enabled me to feel a deeper sense of connection, not only with women, but with the rest of my species. The answer is that everyone is special. So also is every relationship. The creature that forms between any one person and another is like no other creature in the world. It is theirs and theirs alone. Furthermore, while time and space and attention may be painfully finite, love is not. Love has no quantity to exhaust. It is a quality, a living thing that grows stronger the more it is felt. The vigorous practice of love expands the heart and opens its apertures to the world. In other words, to love a lot of women, you have to love them. 
without a trace of bullshit, one woman at a time. You have to bring each of them with you into the perfectly present, creating there a private zone of space and time that can be filled with that particular love. You won't have any of the comforting, though generally broken, social conventions to assure you that your vulnerability is safe. There are no assurances at all, except for those that come directly from the feeling of connection you can make together. You are, in effect, beating back the darkness with the light you generate yourselves. When I judge myself, there's one question I ask. Would I want my daughters to encounter a man like me? And because I want them to be brave in their love, because I want their faith to be annealed by experience on the edge, I hope they find a few of my kind. But I hope they don't bring too many of us home. <laughs> yeah. So that's John Perry Barlow's uh, little taste of his essay on relationships and love and being a ladies' man and shameless about it. <clears throat> Another thing that he wrote that I thought might be worth sharing with you, uh, apparently he wrote this on his 30th birthday. Now, if you haven't heard of him, he was a lyricist for the Grateful Dead, and he was a pioneer in the Internet and the idea that the Internet could be a tool for human liberation. Uh, he started the Electronic Front. Freedom Foundation, I think it's called, EFF. I may be getting that wrong. Uh, he worked with um, Aaron Schwartz, uh, who I've spoken about on the podcast, um, who was an, an activist for internet freedom and the freedom of information. Anyway, you Google John Perry Barlow, you'll learn all about him. Anyway, this is, a, he called this Principles of Adult Behavior. There are 25 principles. Number one, be patient no matter what. Number two, don't badmouth. Assign responsibility, never blame. Say nothing behind another's back you'd be unwilling to say in exactly the same tone and language to his face. Wow. How would social media work if we followed that one? Number three, never assume the motives of others are, to them, less noble than yours are to you. <laughs> Number four, expand your sense of the possible. Number five, don't trouble yourself with matters you truly cannot change. Six, expect no more of anyone than you yourself can deliver. Seven, tolerate ambiguity. Eight, laugh at yourself frequently. Nine, concern yourself with what is right rather than whom is right. Ten, never forget that no matter how certain you, may, you might be wrong. 11. Give up blood sports. 12. Remember that your life belongs to others as well. Do not endanger it frivolously and never endanger the life of another. That one really came home to me when Justin Alexander died. Um, if you've listened to this podcast for a while, you know who I'm talking about. If you're new to the podcast, check out the archives. Justin Alexander, he was a world traveler, adventurer, who I became very close to. Uh, we there's The age difference was such that we developed a bit of a father-son kind of 
regard for each other, love for each other. I don't know. Um, but he pushed things a little too far, in my opinion. And when he died, I was not only heartbroken, but I was angry. I was angry at him for causing the pain that I was feeling, and I knew other people were feeling even far more intensely than I was. Your life belongs to others as well. Do not endanger it frivolously. That's not to say don't take risks. It's not to say don't go out there and live your life. But keep your fucking hands on the motorcycle handlebars. Keep your feet on the pegs. Don't wander off into the the mountains when you're sick and you don't know anyone and don't fucking consort with dangerous people who you can't trust and you know you can't trust. Never lie to anyone for any reason. 14. Learn the needs of those around you and respect them. 15. Avoid the pursuit of happiness. Seek to define your mission and pursue that. Interesting. Happiness is overrated. I agree. 16. Reduce your use of the first personal pronoun. For those of you who aren't into grammar, that's I. Stop talking about yourself. 17. Praise at least as often as you disparage. 18. Never let your errors pass without admission. 19. Become less suspicious of joy. 20. Understand humility. 21. Forgive. 22. Foster dignity. 23. Live memorably. He did, by the way. 24. Love yourself. And 25. Endure. And then at the bottom, I guess this was... uh, A note he sent to his friends, it says, I don't expect the perfect attainment of these principles. However, I post them as a standard for my conduct as an adult. Should any of my friends or colleagues catch me violating any one of them, bust me, John. There you go. All right, I'm going to play you out with a little ditty called One of the Good Ones, which seems appropriate. John Perry Barlow was certainly one of the good ones. And Bruce Damer is certainly one of the good ones. And uh, I'm sure you're one of the good ones as well. This is by a guy who listens to the podcast, Leo DeSanto. You can check him out. His uh, website, I believe, is leodesanto.com. That's the Italian DeSanto, by the way, D-I-S-A-N-T-O. And uh, yeah, this is one of the good ones. It's from his record, The Moon, A Silver Dime. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Bruce Damer that we had in his beautiful house up in the mountains above Santa Cruz on a dark, rainy, mysterious evening. A very memorable night for me. I'm glad you're joining us. In the streets there are no cars, there is no light In the forest owls are waking up the night 
In the houses, in the bedrooms, out of sight People are dreaming Do they sleep because there's nothing else to do? Do they dream because in dreams they're born anew? To discover when they wake they have become One of the good ones I don't expect a lot, I ask too much And I lean upon my anger like a crutch
Okay. Yeah, better. Right. Okay, it looks like we're, we're live. We're rolling. I'm sitting in a beautiful, beautiful, cozy space with Bruce Damer in uh, the Redwoods up above Santa Cruz, just down the street from Ken Kesey's place where a lot of shenanigans yes. <laughs> took place. <laughs> Back in the what, 60s, right? Was uh, that 60s or early 70s? Pranks. Uh, 60. Pranks. 60, yeah, 62, you're right. 62, 63. The pranksters. The merry pranksters. The merry pranksters. Exactly. Yeah, who were a different thread than Timothy Leary's, which was a very serious East Coast thread. Yeah. yeah. And then there was the Aldous Huxley thread. Mm. Yeah. Very intellectual. Right. Mm. Right. And the, I guess what Leary and the pranksters had in common was they both thought that the world would be a better place if everybody mm. tripped. Mm -hmm. How, where do you come down on that? I think it's a very powerful tool and it should be um, the average person raised in the suburbs in the West is not prepared. Yeah. So it needs it needs a container. It needs training. Yeah. It's like what the Greeks did at Eleusis. The Eleusian fields. The, yeah. yeah, the Lesser Mysteries, which was yeah. a nine-month grueling preparation for mm. what was to happen. So they, they, you know, and there was the initiates would arrive in, in Athens and go through all these processes. Do we know anything about the we, processes? We, we do. Uh, we know um, this is all in Karl Ruck, Gordon Wasson, and Albert Hoffman's books yeah. on Eleusis. But Karl Ruck uh, is one of the great greatest living classicist at Harvard. Mm. And uh, they researched Eleusis and concluded it was some kind of psychoactive ceremony that when you think about it, booted up the antiquity. It booted up the classical world. So it actually, I mean, the purpose of Eleusis was to turn basically animal humans from the upper Paleolithic tribal peoples into human beings that could live in a, in civilization. So you know, out of that came Plato's philosophy, the, you know, the academy, aqueducts, the polity, theater, uh, and, a, and a sense of, of understanding sort of this great numinous field. Uh, it was a tremendous. It ran for 1,700 years. Hmm, really? 1,700 years. And everyone was sworn to secrecy. They were. So there's, it's hard to, there's no written record of there's, it. There's relatively good records of the lesser mysteries, that the preparatory, hmm. you know, that prepared these people, uh, and some about the greater. But we have the temple complex, the Telesterion complex. There's a museum there. It's, it's a bus ride out of Athens. Hmm. And uh, there's a frieze uh, that shows a guy holding a platter with clearly with like skinny long psilocybin mushrooms. Oh, really? Offering it to somebody else. And of course, classicists for this has been the great mystery for 500 years of this research, and they were declaring them to be flowers. Right. And you know everything seems to suggest that it was a it was a potion, the kaikion, brewed up. It could have been an LSD analog from smut, sort of moldy wheat. Ergot. Ergot, yeah, yeah ergot, sort of, but it, that's what Hoffman believed, but it was a dangerous thing, trade to work in because that's St. Anthony's fire. Right. So the most horrible way to die in the Middle Ages was to drink beer infected with, Saint, with these smuts. It was a neurotoxin. So LSD is sort of one step away from, from that. Huh. And in fact, er ergotamine or ergots 
you know, was the basis on Hoffman's work in the 1930s to try to synthesize. Right. And that's why he synthesized LSD-25. They thought that ergots could help induce labor. Right. That was one of Sandoz's sort of trying to make something useful out of this. So at, at Eleusis, um, it was sort of considered that uh, you were a human being to join the community of humanity after you had been initiated. Uh, and for sure, I mean, this was the boot up in a sense. Was it available to women? Yeah, I believe there was, yeah. Uh, and, and I think it was not a class-dependent thing. Right. Yeah. You, you, you had a right to go once in your lifetime, and, and often people did it in their younger years, too. In a sense, it was a direct contact with God. It was a Gnostic mm. uh, kind of a thing, mm. but didn't have the Gnostic underlay of all that mental you know, explanation for who's running the world and mm. you know, that sort of thing. But it was uh, Plato described it actually as, you know, coming into a light that was indescribable. It was it was ineffable, um, and he was criticized in his lifetime for uh, for revealing the secret of the mystery uh, through his philosophy. Mm. Yeah. So. So people took his philosophical statements to be essentially uh, yeah, a recounting people, of what was yeah, seen there. And he was he was sort of in hot water um, huh. because they felt it was too close to revealing the mystery. So interesting. So basically, Greek civilization, which did allow, I mean, you could be a fisherman or you could be an elite. Uh, if you you had to speak some Greek, sort of later on they changed the rules. So you had to speak some Greek, uh, but you could come and uh, be initiated mm. and you know we ask ourselves you know what what was the boundary between the upper paleolithic you know coming out of the last ice age and that kind of a world that world which had its revenge on the classical world because that those were the barbarians that that sacked all the cities later so that was still alive and well when the christians hired alaric you know to come and smash the temple because the Christians specifically targeted Eleusis to get rid of it to replace uh, in three, 396 AD it was an actual a known date after the fourth council of Nicaea where the bureaucracy that had this was trying to hold together Eastern Rome under Constantinople uh, Constantine the first uh, created this bureaucracy, this, mm. this spiritual bureaucracy that was tax-collecting, book-based, bureaucratic, male-dominated hierarchy. Uh, and you could only uh, contact heaven or God at, at death, <laughs> and mm. only if you followed all the rules in this damn book. Yeah. And so this, this system was being, was replacing all of the festivals and all of the, the pantheon of gods. Yeah. And uh, so in that specific year, uh, a, a group of these Pauline Christians left Constantinople, headed for Eleusis, and they met Alaric. And they paid him coin to wreck the temple to the foundations. And I think it, far more than you know, so-called so Jesus being turned in for coin by Judas, this is the most di di diabolical payment that has ever been done. Hmm. Because <clears throat> that was basically the force of this Upper Paleolithic coming down upon this beautiful tradition of s sort of opening humans directly to some greater power, but in a beautiful container. 
the most beautiful, gorgeous container and allowing them to integrate and, and the, the, the exquisite skill that this had developed and suddenly it was gone and they replaced it with basically the apostolic church or the Eastern Orthodox Church. And that's where structured corporate power and state power was born. And that's why, in, in some sense, somewhere like the Haight-Ashbury is like the light from Hades returning, Persephone's return. As the ceremony at Eleusis on the ninth day, they, they drank the drink. And they sat and they waited for the light. They waited for Persephone to come from Hades. That was the great myth of the Mediterranean at that mm. time. Uh, coming of spring, the coming of life. And yeah. she returns and uh, opening themselves to this greater collective power as a group. So it was group, it was group field, what we right. call now. Yeah. Um, and that sort of returned in, in the Haight-Ashbury 50 years ago. You know, it sort of... You know, we talked about Ken Kesey, you know, he, in a sense, they were the, the high prankster pre priests that sort of dosed the whole of Western North America with these acid trips. But you think of, you know, people going in with no preparation. That's right? what I was thinking. They're priests with no training, handing out a very powerful yeah. experience to people with no preparation. An, an experience like the Eleusinian experience. Yeah. So it roars back, right? But in a sense, it roared back in the face of, of the ultimate of structured power, right? Yeah. The Cold War. Yeah. So nuclear, armed nuclear missiles and two ideological systems, organization man after World War II, corporations, media, this is the 1960s, like uh, a weaponized uh, consumerism. And so this thing comes up, and, and it came up through wherever it could come, right? If you if you believe in sort of like a mushroom over under a pavement, right? And it just a crack. Came, it yeah. found a crack, and it found it in the crazy, spoiled, you know, the millennials of yeah. the time, which were these these kids, these boomer kids. Yeah, uh, it found the way through because these kids weren't being sent off to war or factories. For the most part, they were privileged, and they had their parents to support them so they came out to San, San Francisco and 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 they were the first generation that was not basically in servitude as young people mm. and so they were free and so they went this is where this came through suddenly this experimentation yeah then the music and the art and the explosion that happened we're still sort of trying to grok the Eleusinian return, in a way. It's interesting how you describe the first occurrence in Greece as being um, sort of a, a trigger for civilization in, in the positive sense, the, the sort of mannered and, and structured in a way that respected rights and like the first, uh, the first uh, government with divided powers mm -hmm. that sort of looked after one another and that, that sort of thing. Uh, and yet in the second iteration, it's sort of going back to the garden. It, it, mm. the, the trajectory is the opposite direction. Get away from civilization. Right. Because in Break a, it down. In a sense, Rome, I mean, uh, what was built on the ruins of both Rome and Greece, right? And earlier, in, um, and uh, Egypt even. The, this is sort of a ruined, a wrecked platform you know, we, we got the Dark Ages, yeah. but we got uh, the rise of 
in a sense, this charismatic, um, ruthless power. That right, came. feudalism. Feudalism, um, you know, that led to things like the Inquisition. And the Inquisition was designed to sort of crush the right. magic people. And then the, right. the witch burning, the, the destruction of any kind of healers or shamans. And then colonialism. And it pushed yeah. that, you know, it pushed into Mexico. And it, right. the women hid the mushroom, the yeah. curanderas. And, right. and it, didn't, it didn't quite kill all of that because that was all initiation too. That was all Eleusinian. But that, that system rolled and almost crushed the entire practice. Yeah. But then in the middle of it, in the, the very center of the biggest machine, which was crushing that, came this return. This a flower grew, you know, in the middle of the biggest machine in the middle of Vietnam and the Cold yeah. War. And boom, it came up. And we're sitting here sort of in the epicenter of this. Mm -hmm. And a, a lot of people have argued that Silicon Valley took place because of mm -hmm. the cross-pollinization of the sort of intellectual uh, ferment of this area together with the, the countercultural movement. It completely did. It would never have happened. So the sort of yeah. thinking outside the box, uh, which is... Steve Jobs uh, yeah. taking acid and... Right. Yeah, right. definitely. And now structured power is coming back, right? It, because structured power will seek energy. It's almost like ego or your traumas. If you have an energetic opening, uh, ultimately the ego or the, the trauma is going to grab hold of that and, and use that and turn it. Right, it's the great turning point of all human experiences when a pure opening into energy and a pure, like, delightful state gets grabbed hold of. That's the birth of all religious systems. Mm. happens as this turning that occurs mm. and and how that turning occurs and how how the structured power and in a sense structured power is the human ego made manifest in organizations governments and whatnot that okay that's a concept i want to like come back to repeatedly in this conversation okay. <laughs> if we can because i i think about this a lot what is happening and i've got sort of a, a mental construct that i'd like to run by you but before we we mm -hmm. go further into this before i turned on the the microphones you and i were talking about trauma personal trauma, personal trauma. And, and some of our, our own experiences recently and parallels by the way you were born two weeks before me really yeah we're, we're very close really? i saw i was looking on your webpage today and your birthday's on there wow uh, 62 yeah yeah end of january end right? of january and, uh, mid-february yeah wow yeah, so we're, we're we're close. We came up in the same times. Uh, is do you remember man landing on the moon? Yeah, yeah, it's one of my earliest memories. Yeah, I mean, I have personal memories, but as far as what the world's things happening out there in the world, that yeah, we had a yeah. black and white TV, and there there was the shape of the person coming down. And yeah. The whole thing, and I met all those people. I worked with some of them. Yeah, right. You for fifteen years. Yeah, I worked yeah. with Apollo astronauts. I worked with the whole of NASA, pretty much. Right. Or, you sort of embody, in a way, this cross pollinization that we were talking about. Have you Have you lived in the Bay Area your whole life? No, I'm from Canada. Oh, that's right. So it's British Columbia, page, uh, BC. Yeah, right. BC. What part? Uh, Kamloops. I was uh, raised yeah. mostly there, and I was born until I was six. I was in Victoria, mm, BC. It's right. a beautiful almost like um, 
paradisical place for little children. Yeah, in the time. It was yeah. Like this perfect world. Green grass and flowers. Magic forests and beaches, and, and yeah. it's on an island, right? And it, yeah. it embodied. So for me, in, in a sense, Vic Victoria was this glowing Oz, mm. you know, and uh, yeah, it was a, this is, uh, I had a, a stunningly wonderful childhood mm. um, after being given up for adoption. Yeah, so I was adopted out. Would you would you go over that again? That that vision of that that you actually re-experienced yeah. your conception. I did. Um, so this was one one particular night, uh, and I have I have developed a practice. It actually was. It's in everyone. I call it endo, for endogenous. Uh, and recently, I just decided to call it endo tripping because, you know, it's exo would be introduced uh, substance or medicine. Right. Endo is what you can produce. And all of us do it. Mm. But when you're a kid, you're, you're doing it all the time. So right. when you're playing airplane during the day, you know, you're, you are the ace fighter or whatever. Yeah. Or you have something very stimulating and you close your eyes. I noticed when I was nine, that would be this flashing colors. Mm. And uh, I thought, wow, that's like color TV, except we don't have one. But our neighbors have a Viking that seemed to only do primary colors. <laughs> uh, but this is like color TV. And I learned how to dial myself back instead of just going to sleep like you would do. I dialed myself back. So that, that field opened and got bigger, mm. and uh, that became my practice of letting my consciousness sort of paint worlds. And I believe that's endogenous DMT. That's just a flush of it, and we do that when we dream or maybe near-death experiences that way. And there's a lot of thinking around this, but that became my tool. So the question for me, and, and recently I've started working in the healing arts because I think I found a group that sort of found the boot up, the way to get at the boot up cycles for people. You know, kind of the underlying things underneath your, your book, Sex at Dawn, where what does cause the rift, you know, what causes the, the trauma? Well, it's trauma. You know, what causes a trauma in marriage, I think, is triggering. And, and there are people who get, who have deeply triggerable traumas, Eckhart Tolle called it the pain body. Mm. He, was, he was one of the first sort of well-known people to name it. Mm. Um, because his practice became to trigger people into their pain bodies and they would start screaming, right? They, something would come up and it would start acting out and he would record them and then play back the recordings and they couldn't believe. They didn't even sound like themselves because mm. it was a triggered uh, trauma. Right. And so the group that I'm with, the, last two years and the next two years in this intensive training is working on not just what generically be called the pain body, but a, say about seven or eight uh, types of traumas that psychology is now identified. Uh, from masochist responses to psychopaths to a schizoid. These are all names from, from science. This is not all, this is not woo. Yeah. Um, so I, I became a practitioner. This is one of those, I found that I have a skill in this area. The skill is simulating other people, which was also something that came from childhood. I felt like I could feel other people inside me and that it was the highest order of connection with people to become them. Hmm. So I was always becoming others. 
to see the world from their perspective and even learning their language, their worldviews. And it allowed me to do something which I now call realm bending. So I can go into communities, I can go into a NASA technical mission planning community and become them. You know, right now I'm wearing my black festival cool things, sort of my magician outfit to become this, but I can go into Islamic countries and do talks at universities or in chemistry. I can go into chemistry or banking or hippie festivals or, and I just change my skins and I, but I changed my entire operating system. Ter Terrence oh. used to describe, you know, these cultural operating systems, don't load them. I load them all. I load them rapidly and... What do you load them onto? That's a good question. So, um, it's some kind of a template inside. Uh, and rewinding, so the, the question was, from my conception, like where did this start? And where it started was uh, that I was given up for adoption at four months in utero. And so through an immense amount... In utero? Well, I, I felt it. I felt the connection drop when I was four months in utero. So that must have... You think that's when your that's, mother decided? That's, yeah, I actually had a vision of them whispering, like two people. I didn't know what people were. Right. But there was an outline and a whispering going on, and then the love connection dropped. And it was very profound. So it's this one night in a very elevated state, I was after this healing, and I was uh, I was put through the entire process. And so at that point, my consciousness, such as it was, was started to grope and look for that love connection that was no longer there. Right. And it went out and didn't know where the boundaries were. And then I knew, sort of fundamentally, my organism knew that it was alone, and that it was coming in to the cosmos alone, so it built this capsule. And then when my mother, my adoptive parents came to pick me up at the hospital after, I think, seven or eight days, they, they said I was totally in my own world, like I was completely internal. So I was in, internal, I, was, I would have almost been diagnosed autistic or something, but my consciousness was always going everywhere, over landscapes, uh, it mm. was going into design spaces and into these kind of, uh, we talked about these endo spaces. Right. So it was able to do that. It was sort of unfettered because it didn't have the boundary of family right. or the, the, the mother's love. It didn't, didn't have that to identify. It didn't, didn't have anything to hang on. So it just actually went everywhere. And so my entire practice, my entire life has been both being ungrounded you know, which this can lead to. But my consciousness goes through the solar system, for example, to design missions or spacecraft for NASA. It just can go anywhere. It can build models, like 3D, high-fidelity models of everywhere. So like a remote viewing sort of capacity. Yeah, like I'm, I'm uh, literally have a model of Mars in my head because we're, I'm on a Mars landing site selection team for Mars 2020, which is a the next, the big rover going in 2020 to look for evidence for life. And we, so literally, I've, I have a map of this landing site that we're pro proposing, uh, where the rocks are, and uh, I've just designed a, a percussive chisel 
that if I can talk headquarters into putting on the mission, we can then break rocks and look for evidence for stromatolites. Mm. Um, Which are fossils? Yeah, it's kind of, and there's some of them on the shelf behind you. Mm. Um, those are 3.5 billion years old evidence for life. Yeah. Huh. So another part of my where my consciousness realms is uh, through time. Right. So I, I decided when I was 14 that the origin of life was the most interesting problem to work on for a kind of a nerdy kid, and that I'd work on it till I was 90. I'd work on it my entire life. Hmm. And it, it took, so I then followed all these signs, like all my life I was like, okay, I'm doing computer science because I want to use computers as a tool to study emergence. And I built these programs that would simulate little, what are now called artificial life. Emergent intelligence? Emergent anything, emergent structure, order, like any kind uh, of self-replicating, self-replicating, self uh, like we're, because that's the, that's the key, right? Yeah. So the universe isn't good at that. But when the universe transitions into the living world, this, this incredible trick is learned, which, which physics is bad at. Huh. And, and in the last three, four years, my colleague and I, Dave Deemer at UC Santa Cruz, and I think we've cracked it. Deemer and Damer? Deemer and Damer, or hmm. Damer and Deemer. <laughs> and, you know, it's on the the cover of Scientific American in August. Uh, so that's how the public is hearing about it. But yeah. it, it, so you, what it, sorry to interrupt you. you yeah. What did you crack? You cracked the, the, the why life is good at it and physics isn't? How life started. So the, the boot so up. So the, the original emergence, the, original the emergence, first emergence. The first emergence. So what about pre-life? Is, is crystalline form a form of emergence? It all of so there's self there's properties in the universe and that you're very insightful because life had to come out of a system that was capable of supporting the the, the fundamental properties had to be there right so crystals when they grow in solution say the solution's drying down and getting more concentrated they're a self-organization so suddenly you see this structure coming out but crystals growing on a planet 10 billion years ago and on a planet today we're going to do the same thing with the same starting you know say salt crystals right there's been no evolution or there's been no oh, okay. advancement maybe a few heavier elements so it's added. just that one step over and over again over and over again so but nothing so comes from that nothing yeah. comes from that so yeah. what we think we've identified and now we're doing chemically in the lab and i'm doing in the field uh, i'm going to yellowstone i'm going to new zealand uh, this june is we're now doing it in the actual hydrothermal spring systems. We're doing the actual chemistry that we think is how life began. Uh, and that's, that provided, I saw that in the vision. I saw how the whole thing was coupled, uh, the, the cycling, it's an engine, basically. Mm. So you have to have an engine to do anything. You, know, you, you want to get from A to B, you need some kind of an engine, your heart, pumps blood around as mm. the engine that's powering one of the many engines powering you there's always cycling motors in, in the bottom of everything mm. there's 14 quadrillion mitochondria in in your body right that's a lot which existed before mammals is yeah, that the, right that they're the little energy centers that were uh, individually living organisms absorbed yeah. by big cells right and so that actually had to happen before you had animals right so 
there's it's very much like the Buddhist ankh, you know, the the cross that the Buddhists wear, where uh, there's a cycle within a cycle, yeah. and then there it's it's exactly that. I yeah. Mean, so the or entire Russian dolls or something. Yeah, but the that cycles set off other ones, oh, set movement. off other ones, right. Right. and the primary one is the Earth rotating and sunlight hitting the surface because that has a pulse of energy, a lot of energy, hmm. and that primary cycle coupled into the birth of life on Earth because of drying down, ponds filling up and then dehydrating. And that's what Dave discovered in the 80s and 90s, that if you dehydrate these chemical solutions down, you know, surprise, surprise, they get more concentrated, but you can form polymers. And other people started forming little peptides out of amino acids just by drying down. Mm. And chemists don't usually do that. They they mm. keep things in solution. Right. Then Dave added lipid, which is a kind of crystal. Lipid is something you get out of, it's, it's your cell wall material. Right. right. Phospholipids are, you're mostly... Fats? Fats, yeah. Right. You're mostly phospholipid. Most of life is just cell wall material. Right. He added simpler li lipids called fatty acids. Uh, and he added whole ranges of them. And it turns out they form these membranes. You just put them in and they come from asteroids too, from meteorites, from space. They come loaded with C10, C12 fatty acid. Hmm. And you put, if you grind up a meteorite and put it in solution, it'll form instantly form membranes. Really? Yeah. So Dave proved that in the 80s that that fundamental building block comes from space. And do we know how it's formed in space? Through cosmochemistry. So uh, if you shine, if you point a really big radio astronomy dish uh, at a, a cloud, a star forming cloud, you're going to find all kinds of organics, polycyclic hydrocarbons. Oh. And in those clouds are forming uh, fatty acids, am amino acids, uh, up to 70 we've identified on in our meteorite collection. 70 of them. Which amino acids are, are a very important part of digestion, right? The they they build the proteins, which are the tools right. that run your body. Right. So the nucleic acids oh. are the memory data system. Yeah. And they crank out amino acid structured little things called proteins that actually <laughs> run. They're the tools of the body. Right. And we use life uses maybe 21 amino acids. But on asteroids, there's over 70 different ones usually so you said life just now you said we and then you said life yeah when you're pondering life which i guess is a big part of your life pondering pondering what yeah. is life how did it start how could it start is it elsewhere are you imagining carbon-based life like what we are familiar yeah. with or are there other possible life that's a good a good question from astrobiology where you know now we have these exoplanet systems and yeah. people are wondering however you know so some you mentioned crystals earlier here's the interesting thing a crystal grows and it's hard right how does it ever create uh, lots of itself it can't so it's a hard crystal but lipid is also a crystal it's a liquid crystal mm. it's soft it's like forms these membranes which can form vesicles and which can form trillions of vesicles and you just put a single drop of water into a dish of this stuff and it'll just form all these things it's a soft crystal so in a way geology and biology branched off with a choice of crystal hard or soft soft means things can get through 
into your little compartment and you can divide those things. They sort of wobble right. apart on their own. Right. Hard crystals, you're, you're fine. You're going to use up all your solutes and make a, a diamond or something, make something beautiful, but it will never evolve. It, it can, it, once it runs out of the building blocks, it just stops. Whereas life learned how to make its own building blocks and keep going and going and going and going. And humans, we, we are our bones, like your, the appetite in your bones is, is an actual mineral. It's also found made by geology. So our cells make minerals. Your glasses are glassesite. So we, for our technology, we make minerals, skyscrapers, highways, concrete. Mm. So we dig minerals and we make, we've invented new ones. So then do you, are you one of these uh, believers that everything that humans do is therefore natural? That everything that exists is natural? I get that I think, argument all the time I when think, I'm saying... I think so, but that's probably maybe an, it's, it's, it's not an informed... Like, to, to understand, in a sense, uh, like we were flying over Perth, Australia, because I went to, I go to field seasons in Northwest Australia. Yeah. And we had just visited a location where, and this was in the Scientific American story, where they found the oldest hot spring on Earth. Uh, three, three and a half billion year old preserved hot spring, fresh water on land, really rare find. Right? It's, very, it's hard enough to find rocks that are three and a half billion years old. There are very few places that have survived, you know, continental mm. crust material that hasn't been subducted or completely chewed up. Mm. And the Pilbara in Northwest Australia is one of those places. And a, a, a young graduate student... And it's student, been on the surface of the planet for three and a half billion years. Three and a half billion years in its own little chunk. Right. And it was, it was buried under two kilometers of lava and only exposed 10 million years ago. Uh -huh. And so we come along, you know, these primates doing science and with rock hammers, and we are privileged because suddenly there's... Uh, you know, there's this exposed outcrop that shouldn't be there, right? It's three and a half billion years old, but it was it was preserved like a was mummified, it was mm. capped. And the young graduate student Tara Jokic from University of New South Wales found this vein, this very strange vein, and her uh, her professor Martin Van Cranendonk, they just they sampled the site and they did thin slices and they realized that's geyserite. We, we haven't even, we, we've been mistaking this whole region. We thought it was a seashore. It's actually a, call, a volcanic caldera with a lake in it. And all around were hot springs, just like the environment where we think life started. And, and so we met them. Well, while they were discovering that, Dave and I were putting together our coupled phases engine in the same month, hmm. <laughs> right? And our publications were, were in parallel. Then we met in 2015 and realized we just found the team that has found the rock evidence for for a, a spring for where life can begin. So you don't think life began in undersea geysers then? You think it, it yeah, began that, on... Yeah, that, that's been a prevailing theory, but chemists have never liked it because if you're underwater, it breaks down anything you make instantly. Because water, they call it the universal solvent. Yeah, especially salt water, I guess. And salt water is terribly uh, a difficult place to do chemistry. So our, our colleagues would never use seawater. In fact, I went to Yellowstone in June and we got acid and alkaline freshwaters and we put our lipids in there, our little liquid crystals, 
and it formed uh, vesicles, and we were able to contain DNA and RNA in those vesicles in spring water from Yellowstone. And then Dave went down to the beach at Santa Cruz and took some seawater and filtered it out, you know, take the organics out, and it crystallized every single lipid mixture, just like. Mm. And we just submitted the paper for publication three weeks ago. Mm. So we went to the, unlike most of our colleagues, they, they don't go to the field. We go to the field and we say, we can't just be theoretical. We can't just use glassware mm. and buy reagents. We have to go and, and, and by going to the field, by going to the new hot springs, trying it there, and then going to visit the most ancient place life existed on earth, it's tremendously inspiring. I mean, it's just mind-blowingly inspiring because you're visiting our ancestors mm. the site of our oldest ancestors and and you bring these rocks home and i've been in my talks i've been bringing the stromatolite to my talks and handing it out for people to hold and said you are holding evidence this is our common ancestors and, and it's not just this, this is not primates right this is everything, <laughs> everything so these are ever walked or swum or flown yeah these yeah. are biofilms that had to condition a toxic planet for th over three and a half billion years by emitting oxygen everything i mean they had to clean the iron out of the system they had to then oxygenate the iron system. there was iron in the iron atmosphere everywhere really yeah and, and iron oxidizes like it rusts yeah so the, the earth because i think it had a a secondary planet collision that created the moon, mm. the cores got sprayed apart, mm. like a thea, which is this Mars-sized object that slammed into the Earth, and otherwise we couldn't have such a large moon, we couldn't capture that. But I think that the core material is why we have a good iron core, which means we protected our atmosphere with a magnetic field from being blown off, which is one great benefit, but it also put a lot of iron into the system. So the planet was still molten at the time of the collision? It was probably solidifying, like mm -hmm. the surface was cooling. Uh, it was at 4.5 some billion years ago, and then bam. And when, so how old was it at that point as an entity? It was probably only a, a 200 million year old. So the solar system was new. Oh. And there were all these protoplanets everywhere and all this rock everywhere because mm. it was it, everything was accreting out of this disk. So the the gas giants were forming in the outer solar system. Lucky Jupiter, for us. Saturn. Then yeah. Jupiter actually's orbit moved out and mm. it pulled the asteroid belt out past right. Mars. Otherwise this would be a shooting gallery. Mm. So it was a shooting gallery for four or five hundred million years, including uh, this mass of whack. Right. And that would instantly sterilize a planet. Right. And, and so the moon was like a, a chunk that got knocked off. It was like a spray of material that uh -huh. formed a disk. So the models show that within 30 days, this disk of stuff that was, was pouring around this planet that was re-coagulating uh, formed into the moon within 30 days. So it, it, it adhered. It yeah. came together yeah, um, because of gravitational... Gra mutual gravitation. So the big blob started accreting. And Mars has two little moons, which are just rocks. But there would have been trillions of those. So they were captured. They were captured. The rocks, right. Yeah, they were captured. Very interesting. So can you tell that a moon's been captured? Or what, what's the word for when it's blown off of the planet? I, I don't Is even it, know. No, the, the it doesn't term. happen that often. It doesn't often. have... 
So, I mean, like, for example, you say they're rocks, so they have their own form. They're, maybe they're not spherical. They're, yeah, they're uh, it's, uh, Deimos and Phobos. So they're, they're yeah. just asteroids from other, they're produced through other right. processes. And the moons of Jupiter must be the same. They must be the same. Because Jupiter you said, is a gas giant. It's a gas giant, yeah. so it, it, it couldn't have a collision. I mean, right. it, it wouldn't spray material off. So they're sort of captured, they're captured objects as well. You know, here's a weird question, and I mean, pardon me for asking you any stupid questions that come up, but I don't get to speak with an astrophysicist very often, I'm, if that's what you I'm, are, astrobiologist. I, I don't know what I am. I guess I'm an astrobiologist, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, I'm always perplexed by things that we assume we know. In fact, I have this idea to write a book about, you, you know, remember when Rumsfeld talked about the known knowns and the yeah, known that, unknowns? that was sort of the only good thing that came out of eight years of a, <laughs> exactly. of a rotten presidency was that. Exactly, that yeah. one line. Yeah. Um, but I was thinking it would be interesting to write a book because the more time I spent studying evolutionary theory, and I think this happens in anything that you study in any depth, you start to recognize how much remains unknown. Mm -hmm. And yet people outside of that discipline sort of think, yeah, they've got that worked out. They know how evolution happens, you know, or they know how stars are formed in the universe and the bit was the Big Bang, you know, whatever. And yet when you dig down into it, you find that there's all this, yeah. you know, what we call black matter or, you know, dark, dark matter, matter dark, dark energy. Yeah, it's like there, there's these huge areas that no one understands at all. Yeah. Um, and one of them that keeps that, that comes to me is, you know, they talk about what is it called, spooky, spooky something in quantum physics or, or yeah, distance sort of, at a motion, spooky action, uh, action at a distance. Yeah, or Bell's theorem, which when they split the atom and the two yeah. pieces spin off and, and they change the they're coupled right yeah. and they change the spin of one with electromagnetic tunnel or something and yeah. then the other will also change. And that photosynthesis uses uh, quantum tunneling. Oh, no, does plants it? use it? Yeah, oh, it's so. Anyway, so that that's a big like. How does that happen? No one knows how it happens, and you. Know, but I, am I wrong, or does no one know how gravity happens either? You know, it just is there. So yeah, so the great. I mean, this is a wrong question for me because I don't have a background. But my neighbor here, Nick Herbert, has worked all his life. In, I know his name. Yeah, he's uh, one of the fathers of quantum fundamentals. Oh, okay. And he's our long-bearded Gandalf. Is he an author? Has he written? Yeah, he's written several books on, okay, yeah. on physics. I recognize um, his name. Yeah, he's yeah he's very well known. He was in the Mavericks of the Mind book oh, along that's, with that's Terrence. How. Yeah. Okay. David I, J. I, Brown's I, book. I wrote a review of that book in grad school. Okay. It was like one of the first things I ever published. <laughs> oh, <laughs> my, I, uh, my professor assigned it to me. Mavericks well, of the Mind. That was a great yeah, book. I, I I work out with him every week. Oh really? And so oh. we talk about. I mean, he he's always slapping my wrist and saying, you're using classical thinking and logical thinking for the quantum world, which you can't. Right. It's very weird. It's not, it's not sort of something that rational, classically built brains can grok. It's so but, weird. But it does have rules and, and, yeah, and predictable and, results. And actually, the standard model, which includes the quantum level, is an amazingly beautifully uh, predictive model. I mean, it, it's gone from you know, success to success to success. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's just, it's like, wow, we've, you know, between 
the the un, unusual or spooky the spooky uh, effectiveness of mathematics to describe physics, um, which it shouldn't be able to do. I mean, you think about it, but it's incredibly predictive. Uh, we really are. I mean, we're on for us for a species, probably an intelligent species. We've done a rockingly good job. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. You know, it's it's almost like the primate brain. I mean, you think of other intelligences that might out be out there, and you think the chance of a brain evolving that can do all symbolic logic, and there, there's the whacked out mystics, right, which I think I'm probably one of, that are tolerated in the system. Uh, and our lives are so short that we, uh, we have this hot-blooded drive, right? We drive our systems hard, so we're able to crack things and then we die, but we have a system of memory called publications to pass it on and we built something called science which was an accident to 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 have a discipline of self-correcting and publishing publishing and, and eventually self-correcting out dumb ideas and coming up with new ones through this sometimes tortuous process but we we invented this and you can imagine you know what would possess a big group mind alien civilization you know a huge connected blob that lived forever, you know, what would motivate it to, to solve these problems? Probably nothing. You know, so their intelligence could take many containers. Yeah. But the container that we are is really good at for evolving knowledge and tools really fast. You know, we have ten fingers. You know, but we're so bad at applying them. No, we're really good at applying it. That We're almost too good. So So we apply them and we invent atomic bombs yeah, and and we almost destroy ourselves because we're not mature as human beings. Yeah, but then and this is sort of circling back to where we were starting to talk, we we invent the MRI, which is a product of Einstein, really a product of the atomic age, and we're able to watch our brains operating, and so psychologists who got tired of giving people antidepressants for ten years and not being able to treat these traumas decide to put some patients into MRIs and trigger them into trauma, into the pain body, right. and watch how the brain actually is firing and realize, my God, it's not just the vagal nerve, it's not just the parasympathetic, sympathetic nervous system, the deep, deeply built traumas are OSs, they're apps. Operating systems. They're operating yeah. systems and they, they have their own way to act out. Yeah. And so, you know, Jack Cornfield talks about his triggers and, and observing and watching and naming the, when he gets triggered, hmm. you know, as, as a practice. Yeah. But so we literally are on the verge of, of understanding how people boot up on a moment by moment basis. That's amazing stuff. So it's not just the origin of life, the chemical boot up, but the, how humans boot up. So a little baby, you know, giving you an example in, in our training. So the masochist response is one of the toughest to heal. You know, I think your your partner would agree. You know, she she has a, a good practice working with psychopaths. Yeah. But the masochist uh, is typically remember in the eighties, I think seventies or eighties, where somebody's advice was was it Dr. Spock's advice was let the baby cry out. Yeah. Right? Let the baby cry out. So what happens, they now know that's that's incredibly bad. Yeah. So it's like drag uh, Tiger mom is also a traumatic injury right. to children, which is 
unfortunately a popular thing. Yeah. But that's a traumatic uh, childhood injury mechanism. But the letting the baby cry out creates a masochist response because the baby's system, so it's crying and reaching, kind of like I was in the womb. Yeah. Nothing's ever coming. So it collapses. The system then collapses within into despair. It goes quiet. The child goes quiet. And then a shell is built. Like, you can't reach me. You can't see me. No one knows me. That's the masochist. So treating the masochist uh, protector, or say the, a wound is then created that no one came, you know. And this can just be a few episodes of this. And it, it, it becomes deeply programmed, you know, on a two-month-old baby or something. Or two-week-old baby even. It was probably, so all, all of these injuries happen at different stages of development. Like psychopaths uh, injuries can happen all the way into the teen years. When someone's coming into sexual uh, knowing and some sexual thing happens, then you get the psychopath seductive, where someone just becomes absolutely programmed to control everyone through seduction to keep from getting injured, to keep, say, they were sexually abused by a relative or something. So these are the fundamental boot-ups of how people operate, and people are often blends, right? They're a bit of metamasochist, a bit of psychopath, and people who are skilled at reading their systems can actually determine what mix they are, what blend of apps or boot-up they are. And then you can work individually on each of those traumas. And they're mostly pre-verbal, so yeah. this is why... Uh, Keep talking. I'm just going to move your mic to the other side okay. here because it's right. scraping a little. There you go. Sorry about that. Do you, do you worry about getting caught in metaphor? You use the metaphor of technology to describe mm -hmm. the mind a lot. Mm -hmm. And I always... That's something I'm very conscious of, how different ages turn yeah, they, to the metaphor of the age to talk we about use the brain. Pistons to describe Frankenstein. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it it's a danger but it's a tool. Yeah. You know, it's a it, it, yeah. yeah, I agree. Um, so for instance, the idea of the singularity is very stuck in software. Huh. Um, and it's a nonsense idea, but mm. it it's comes out of births out of this coming of operating systems and Mm. And AI, you know, this current idea of AI, which is really a nonsense thing, too. It's Do you think just, so? It's just fast table lookups, you know. So AI is just, it's limited to a particular sort of cognition that can never yeah. reproduce itself? Yeah, it, well, most people, and this is why I left computer science, because I realized computer science is a dead end. Mm. I, I, I found myself in a cul-de-sac. I'd... I'd done a lot of programming and built a lot of systems and led teams that were doing a lot of this stuff. I held four conferences on emergence from computing, including Richard Dawkins and Douglas Adams was involved, were involved in these conferences. They're called Digital Biota. And they were from 1997 to 2001. And I realized, oh, there's this whole ethos in computer, there's a priesthood, but there's an enormous bubble of hubris. Mm -hmm that surrounds not only uh, computer science, but uh, nanotech people, I found that way too. People who uh, believe that code can do everything, and that their instruction sets and their metaphors can do all of reality. And even John von Neumann, the father of modern computing in a lot of ways, knew that this was a fallacy. And in some of, I went through his archives at the Institute for Advanced Study, where the first 
modern digital computer was made. And he talked about the limitations of their design, which was, it's now called the von Neumann bottleneck, where code comes in, it goes through a thin pipe called a processor, and then it goes and gets more data or goes to a screen. But there's always this thin pipe. And von Neumann knew that this was a, a terribly limiting architecture for natural systems, to try to simulate natural systems. And we were still on that architecture. So when I was applying computers... Is the pipe getting not, wider? Not noticeably. No, it's really? faster but not wider. Ah, oh, no, how, how to explain that? What, so isn't, I would have thought fast and wide were the same. In they're, this they're not the same. So here, here's the, the, the discussion I had with Terence McKenna one night in Hawaii, because Terence, he was one of these characters that had no background in technology. He, he, he used a Mac, that was it, and he read Omni Magazine, right? So and he read right. science fiction, so he yeah. made all these proclamations from very loose, not grounded information about what technology was. So one night, I, we sort of, I just talked for two hours and he listened. That's an accomplishment. Yeah, because I, I was the expert. Yeah. I was trying to, in a sense, reboot Terrence to say, you've got to be kidding about this singularity thing. Right. Because, so I gave him the following metaphor. I said, your Mac over there is a big field of sand grains, and the sand grains are the pixels on the screen. And if you click on something, it runs programs, which then take all those sand grains down through this hourglass called a CPU, and they go down to another pile of sand called the disk to pull stuff, and then they go back up through the CPU, and you know, your Mac is some Quadra or some clunky Mac, but it was just good enough. Uh, so when we were doing virtual worlds, I said, that virtual world that's on the screen is not a place. You know, that's a three-dimensional thing made of polygons. It's still going through that, that hourglass just that the hourglass is getting so fast that we can actually make VR. You know, it's just a faster hourglass, but still just that system. But I said to him, you know, your, your pipe, or you know, the smoke coming out of your pipe, because he's always smoking weed, and all those individual particles that were moving are a very different system. That's a massive stochastic system of those particles going and they're interacting weakly with each other and sometimes they're connecting. But they're creating this incredibly complex structure called the smoke that's going up that's influenced by almost a quantum dynamic level. And that's nature. So nature uses that as its base. Mm. And that's a really rich base. Mm. But computer people hate that because mostly nothing's happening. So inside your cell, uh, stuff is moved around by bouncing water molecules that are just shoving stuff around. So they're bending proteins into the right shape. They're pushing stuff around so that it actually bounces around and comes into contact with enzymes. You know, various things happen. It's stochastic and probabilistic. What is stochastic? stochastic. It's like things happen only a percentage of the time. And mostly it's rat through random tries. So evolution through random mutation is a stochastic system? It's a stochastic system. system. Oh. And it does this hill climbing trick of going up to a little ridge. This was my PhD work. Finds a ridge and then it creates offspring, which are not quite as good as it, because <laughs> they might have to find, this is Darwin's finches, hmm. they might have to crack nuts in a different way so that the baby birds, their beaks aren't optimized, they're a little bit mutated, because one day that, that seed might get harder. 
So then there'll be one offspring that has a more sharp beak because of just random try and it can crack the uh, sharper, uh, the harder nuts. Mm. So it goes across a ridge and is able to access more nuts, more trees with, with harder shells. Do you know anything about directive evolution, I think it's called? Directed evolution. Directed, I think it's called that. I, I, it's been a long time since I read it, but it was something about bacteria that evolved to metabolize a certain substance that had not yet been a, detected by the bacteria. Yeah. It, it was is somehow right. it was sensing yeah. what was going to be needed well, in the future. Evolution does this really weird trick. It may create a tool that is good at one thing, but maybe not as quite good, good enough. And then a, the condition changes and suddenly that tool is really good. And so it looks as though there's almost like a pre-designing, but it, it never is. This is sometimes called Darwinian pre-adaptations. So right. th this is seen all the time. Huh. So you, you hit something with high ultraviolet light and suddenly the pigment, the black pigment that it's making becomes useful because it blocks the ultraviolet. Right. And then suddenly all of your slime molds are black. But only but a few of them... that's not why it evolved in the first place. That's not why it evolved. It, there really isn't anything that is plausibly explainable other than the system of natural selection. Hmm. Except that in our new model, we're extending that quite significantly. This is, we're spitting on various topics yeah, here, but yeah. our new model, uh, the most fundamentally powerful thing that will come out, it'll come into all of human endeavor. Uh, and somebody last year, after a talk, uh, basically came up and said to me, you, you're going to create a second Copernican revolution, do you know? I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, look it up. I mean, Copernicus not only did all this incredible work in mathematics and things, but he centered the orbits of planets around the sun, the heliocentric universe, uh, and, and published after his death. You didn't need to look that up. <laughs> well, I knew that, but I, I read the, all of Copernicus's history. And yeah. he, he published after his death, so he didn't lose his head or his funding. And he was a mystic as well, wasn't he? I think, I think he think was. His, his mother was a witch, I believe, or some yeah. sort of healer. And he had visionary experiences. Yeah. So I said, well, what do you mean new Copernican revolution? Because, and I realized, oh, because if we found the dynamic system that can create all, can create life, it's the system that also creates everything else. It creates all of biology and it creates consciousness. It creates technology. Now, of course, we've all sort of thought, well, technology is kind of using natural selection in a way, Darwinian natural selection. But this is a direct way to find out how the whole thing booted up. So I started doing thought experiments around it. So I thought, okay, we've got our little protocell cycling through wet, dry pools, picking up new polymers, getting tested in the wet phase. Do they wobble apart? Do they stay intact? Do they bubbles pop or not? And then you get a collection of bubbles that didn't pop. And this is what we see in the lab all the time. And then they make longer polymers. So we can actually start the first phases of this but then I realized in this thought experiment, oh, there are three things that are operating here. The bubbles, because they trap polymers, they make things more probable to happen inside. They crowd things together. It's like a crowded cocktail party. You're going to meet that investor, you know. That's like why people, it or not. <laughs> like it or not, you're crowded together or yeah. that fateful 
yeah. sexual partner or whatever. It, it's a probability machine. So crowding and containment is a probability and probability increasing engine. Mm. And life does it over and over and over. It's its mm. primary mover of, of the living world and culture, everything. So this idea of containment right. and, and things going in and out of compartments. And then compartments can talk to other compartments in our chemical system, and that's message passing. So a message can, literally a, a chemical product's made here, goes into the second bubble, causes something to go back. That's an internetworking function like the internet. And I realized that the third thing can, can emerge from when you have those two, you can start creating memory. So those two systems cycling can start writing code. They can write little memory cells we call genes or we call really uh, short oligomers, they're called like little pieces of genetic information that only do one job. And that system of probability engine drives more interconnection and messaging which writes more memory which then makes things more probable and goes and goes, made everything. So at these consciousness conferences I've been going to, uh, the SAND conference, Science and Non-Duality, and the Science of Consciousness conference in, in San Diego with Stuart Hameroff, I, I presented them a challenge. I showed them this model and I said, find anything that is outside this system. It is not explainable by these three things. It makes all experience, everything. So by going back to the booting up of life, we can see the three building blocks that physics is crappy at. Physics can't do probability very well. It, you know, here we have a 13 billion year old universe and we're getting, you know, we get gold and things, but we don't get uranium, or we get uranium, but we don't get californium until intelligence makes the, it's like, that's all the universe has done in 13 billion years is make a bunch of stars and heavy elements. <laughs> it's not productive, right? It's really not productive. That's really it really, Yeah, it's doggedly slow. It created slow. everything that is, but it's not productive. It's not productive. It didn't make complex things. Uh -huh. But when life gets started, life is like, uh, takes off. Right, right. And, and so the Copernican revolution is the following. If we found the engine that, that can, can literally lift out of building blocks, this system which can adapt and write new information and adapt and create new innovations like new tools, it's, it, can, it will roll through not only evolutionary biology, it rolls down into physics because we found a way that physics can actually read and write information which has been searched for for 50 years. That's how we're working with our colleagues now on campus on information and physics. We found it. It's a self-assembly of, 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 of uh, building blocks in the cycling system. And it's like, well, that's not life yet. It's, it's physics. So how's the code written? The code is written randomly. So it's, think of Las Vegas. Think of a, not even a roulette wheel. I mean, uh, it's, a, it's a basically a, a gambling metaphor. So how life comes into being, and this is disappointing for theists or people who want spirit there, how life came into being is this super obvious process. And the, the way it works is, what if you, you, you wrote random programs on strips of paper and, and ran them through a simple computer, and then one day one of them lit up the lights on the computer, and you said, well, let's take that one and just add to it, right? And that's a really bad way of doing engineering, very slow.
Yeah. Right. But it will give you functional programs. So if you can find a system in nature that does that, you found the basically the OS boot up. And we found it in cycling little pools that are drying down. As they dry down, we get long chains of RNAs and peptides right. between layers of lipid. And then when we fill oh, the I pool... Oh, I see what you're saying. The, the, this cycle going through physics writes information in the form of... Random polymers. Okay. And because it has all the building blocks from space... Right. It has, it, it, it has the membrane. Yeah, the dust is coming down, right? So right. A, a billion times the amount of dust falling in the early solar system, coating the land surfaces, and these little hot pools are just filling up with this stuff. And as they dry down on a diurnal cycle or they're filled through a hot spring, hot springs do things on a regular basis. Right. You, you need regular pumping. That's the engine. Ah, the engine of right, creation right. is the combination of the cycle of the planet rotating and filling of pools on a regular basis. You need to do this on a regular basis so that you make products over and over and over right. again so they don't break down. Like you have a to factory. It's a factory. Yeah. So you have to make things before they break down. You have to uh. make new things. That's how you live. Right. That's how biology works. And the temperature changes, right? Doesn't the temper temperature come out at a much higher temperature and then it cools as it yeah. diminishes? Yeah, so temperature fluxes help the chemistry. Right. So when we go to these places like uh, Rotorua in, in New Zealand this June, it's fantastic. Like, there's a zillion pools and some of them are this pH and some of them are that pH and some of them have particulates and some of them are filled mm -hmm. every 23 minutes. Right. And like, this is a huge chemical factory right. and it's natural and these would have been all over the early earth because right. there's volcanic islands right. everywhere. And so it's, a, it's like, oh, this is right in front of us and Darwin had predicted warm little pond in his letter to Hooker in 1871. He said, oh, what if some warm little pond somewhere there should be phosphoric salts and such and such right. that a protein compound should be made and become more complex. Interesting. He totally nailed it. Right. But he, he didn't know about the, the, the breathing. The breathing, the, the, exactly. Yeah. yeah. But he his intuition was right on. So what Dave and I are doing is bringing the, our whole field now back to Darwin's warm little pond, but it's, mm. it's a breathing, cycling system. And now we know about nucleic acids and amino acids in the complex. So we believe that it actually was able to boot up the living world by writing random code first and testing it. So you, if you, you can do this in your bathtub. I mean, if you put bathtub bubble soap, like taking a bubble bath, you're, you're putting a compound then that keeps the bubbles around longer. And if the bathtub dries down, those bubbles are going to uh, sort of layer into a bathtub ring, which tend to be hard to clean because there's lots of layers. Hmm. But in between those layers is all this chemistry going on. Hmm. So in these hot spring pools, that was the, the magic system. And we've replicated this now in using Yellowstone waters, right. for example. So, you know, each pool can make trillions and trillions and trillions of random polymers and then test them out. It tests them out when the pool fills up. Uh, little protocell containers bud off this layer, this dried bathtub ring, and they float around. And most of them pop or they dissociate. You know, bubbles pop. You watch ocean, you know, sea foam, it mostly pops over time. But the ones that are stabilized by the polymer they contain are still there when the pool dries down. And so you have the sludge at the bottom of the pool. 
that sludge is the unit at the origin of life. And the sludge is a network. This is where we found our generative engine. Like, oh, the surviving protocell bubbles, not only are they all packed together, but they're protected by each other. They're a communal unit and they can internetwork because stuff happening in one can, can spread throughout this, what we call a protocell mass or an aggregate. And it has a name, the progenote. And as you cycle the pool and the sludges grow, like the sludges should actually get bigger because you, you, you're selecting out polymers that make bubbles more stable, more bubble bath solution. And you get a growth in these sludges and they, they elongate their polymers and natural selection has occurred, is now occurring just in a physical system. Right. And then the sludge, this is the PowerPoint of this, that sludge is the, or, is the common ancestor. There was never an individual at the origin of life that was the common ancestor. It was always a communal unit. Oh. So our ancestry is a community, and, and not just any community, it is a tightly internetworked, snuggling together community. Even, even prior to all of the, the functions of life emerging in those sludges, and one day one of the protocells learning how to divide itself within the sludge, that's the unit that is the living world. That's actually the unit that was selected for. And the entire planet can now be seen, and including our bodies, our civilization, now can be seen through a new lens. There's not through the lens of survival of the fittest, you know, what you talk about in your book, but through the a brand new language can come in now to unseat survival of the fittest, because that's such a Victorian idea. Yeah. You're seeing lions and gazelles on the, you know, wearing your pith helmet. Yeah. You know, of course you would conclude that the superior Victorian mind was of course the survival of the fittest, as, as in your book about, very when you talk about Darwin, very self-aggrandizing. But what actually is the case is the whole planet is the progenote. Hmm. The whole planet is a gigantic microbial mat system. It's yeah. all interconnected. And we are grazers on the mat, right? So we emerged as animals very late in the, in the game, you know, just the last few percentage of Earth's history. We eat the products of the mat. Animals that are eating things and, and trees are an outgrowth of the microbial community. So where, where does the eating come from in this process? That you have the, this, this pro, what is it? The progenote. The progenote progenode yeah. is, the, is the, the sludge and you've got these, these organisms, well, pre-proto-organisms. Pre yeah, they're pre, they're not even they're technically alive yet. Right. But they're doing things that biology does. They're so met metabolism, growing in a way. They're the, growing, the, right. Right. There's more, more sludge, more growth. And they're and elongating the... They're elongating the polymer, so they're doing the right. trick that life already do that does for us, and they're, they're inventing things. So every time the pool dries down, they go back into layers, it allows them to dry down and make more polymers, and then they they rebud trillions of new test experiments, hmm. new bubble bath bubbles. So they're reproducing in a sense. They're reproducing, yeah. So we found a mechanism for reproduction before, uh, before cell, life. Before life. Yeah. And so this cycling system is a physics-based machine that does things that life does, that then life gradually replaces. So one day. The sludges have just evolved so much that like the top layer of sludge is now capturing sunlight, right? Just 
there's like local little polymers that know how to capture sunlight, so they're energizing all the slides. And that's from this sort of sporing process within which there is some, some selection. Of random yeah, there's selection happening. Yeah, there's selection. At a pre-biological level. At a pre-biological level. So the system of selection, it has to be there before what a biologist would call the transition to the living world. Where that is fascinating. It's fascinating. Yeah. And, and we see it in pattern today. In If it rains after a long drought, the soils become extremely moist and there's suddenly a whole lot of metabolism. Right. And what are those plants doing? They're, they're, they're preparing for the dry phase by making seeds and spores, which encapsulate this polymer called DNA and RNA and whatnot. That, I was going to ask you if the polymer was the pre-DNA and it was RNA, the pre -DNA and genetic and RNA material. And, yeah, yeah. So, either, so that that strand getting longer is essentially the origins of the double helix. Everything. The whole. Yeah, and and initially it's a cloud of short little strands, and then eventually they are ligating together, and you're getting things that can wind and unwind, and that's a long process. So maybe after 10 million years, the pond, say the ponds have got their sludges. The sludges all have different properties. The oh, the, so they're differentiating. They're now. differentiating. And now, is that based on where they are in the layering? That's, that's based on sort of the local conditions. Oh, okay, so, right. More sunlight, less temperature. Yeah, higher acidity can do this better. Breeze that dries it faster or slower. Precisely. So yeah. these these are polymeric evolution things going that a, a geologist would say, I can't break that with a rock hammer. I'm not going to call it geology. Right. A biologist might say, it's doing lifelike things, but it's not alive yet. It's sludge. Yeah. So there's going to be a whole new field of, of, of growing these sludges in the lab. Sludgeology. And sludgeology. <laughs> and, and it's... You heard you know, it here, kids. You heard it here. So, uh, I, I still hear you. My head. I pulled my headphone out. Ahead. Got so excited. So, so here's the magic. You you can't just do it based on a few pools full of sludge because what happens? The pools die out. The pools dry out. They stop getting water, or uh, they get a huge rain wash event and it just completely creams them out. Or there's a volcanic eruption, ash falls. Right, because you're talking about hundreds of millions or billions of years. Yeah, so you're saying a volcanic island at 4.3 billion years ago, um, which has huge tsunamis, uh, acid rain, mm. meteorite impacts constantly, mm. uh, that yeah. kind of thing. So it's a, a tough environment. Yeah. But there's a huge amount of, of cycling freshwater hydrothermal pools like Yellowstone. There's everywhere. It's just like all over the landscape. So, but the problem is these pools are short, could be short-lived or conditions could change, or the sludges could jam up chemically because they they can't get rid of waste products very easily. There's no active biology, so they, they get choked on their own waste. So what is their waste? How do you know the difference between the sludge, sludge and its waste product? Uh, it's got a lot of, of chemistry that's going on that produces nothing, right? Because it's just, it's random pool stuff. Right. So. Only a fraction of the little reactions are helping the system to evolve. The rest are just getting in the way. Oh, uh, okay. Now, every time... So it's not a metabolism process. It's just associated... It's associated stuff or it's stuff failed, happening on the failed metabolism. The byproducts. Like, these are inefficient reactions. It's not like right. a very tuned cell is super efficient. Right. Like, and cells have got, you know, 
membranous pores that push things in and out. Right. So this, it's very fragile. So the progenean period or the progenote is a very fragile gelatinous mass that is subject to being completely destroyed easily. It has one, one way to jump beyond that fragility, which is distribution. So here you have a landscape with lots of pools and a rain wash event washes a bunch of sludge from yeah. one pool to the other, or during the dry phase, wind blows some of this filmic material and it's distributed, so it stays ahead. And it can reproduce. So yes. a little bit of it landing in a pool, right. it'll sprout there. It'll sprout and it will donate its innovations to whatever's in that pool. Ah, uh -huh. so now you've got some sort of interesting, almost sexual reproduction. It's almost happening. sexual reproduction. And so, and life had to do this to stay away from degradation and being completely lost. It had to constantly jump from one place to another, which is what life still does. I mean, conditions change, but the, life's primary thing is spread my seed as wide as possible because local conditions will change. And so things are, plants are oriented, everything's oriented toward keeping that distribution network going. Hmm. And, and so you have this cross grid that appears. And so ahead of a massive tsunami or volcanic ash fall, some pools make it, and then the polymeric evolutions that were donated to that pool make it. And then that pool's wiped out, but not before they've been blown to another pool. And so, so it's jumping ahead of this process that the universe is trying to like take it all down to equilibrium and wipe everything out. But guess what? There's a new, new kid on the block, new game in town, which is evolution and distribution and recombination, which is more powerful, ultimately, than the whole process of the planet trying to degrade everything. You know, so the planet's trying hmm. to, water's trying to dissolve you down. Right. Acid rain is doing that. Volcanoes and lava flows and, you know, you end up getting washed into the ocean, you're, all your membranes blow up. I mean, everything's trying to wipe you out and dissolve you constantly. But life <laughs> learns this trick of jumping from one place to the other and combining its tools. So how did human civilization become so robust? Because we combine innovation and tools. You know, we learned the, the ax from that group and then we got fire from that group. And then we, if we had stayed as isolated communities, we've been wiped out by some big climactic thing. But because we were always on the, mo on the move and always sharing technology, we became an incredibly robust uh, species hmm. that we could live in, in, at the toe of a glacier because we had learned about fire and also uh, making boots mm -hmm. out of the leather of animals. Like, wow, that's pretty cool. Mm. But, Sewing was a huge innovation. And then in, we could live in the 160 degree surface temperatures of Western Australia, the Aboriginals. They can survive there too by mm. using all these different techniques. So it was, it was the same animal, but because communities innovated tools in, in their pools, in their communities, and those tools got donated to the entire system. So the smartphone is now made in China, so Chinese have smartphones. It was invented here, but now the whole of humanity has a smartphone. And so it's this rapid fire. It's the same as, as original biology, the same as the origin of life. And it's a really powerful internetworking. It's not just internetworking, the network effect, it's the donation of tools and the cross-mixing of innovation constantly that lifts you ahead, 
keeps you ahead. And we're and it's ever accelerating. Wow. Okay. So it's going to take me like the rest of my life to just catch up with what we just talked about here. Um, uh, several species of locusts begin their life as grasshoppers. Hmm. Do you know this story? I don't know the story. Right. No. It's, it's really interesting. There was a, an essay in Eon magazine uh, a few years ago. Uh, I think it's called The Selfish Meme Has Got to Die or something like that. Hmm. It, was a, it was an attack on the selfish meme concept. But the, what really st stuck out to me is this story. So... Um, the the locusts that are famous in the biblical plague of locusts in yeah, North yeah, Africa. Yeah. So they begin life as grasshoppers. And these grasshoppers are dispersed, peaceful, elegant, long legs and beautiful coloration. Mm, and, mm -hmm. uh, and then the rains come and lots of green material appears. And the, the grasshoppers reproduce quickly. And so the population increases greatly. Then the rains stop and the green areas start to shrink. Yeah. So you yeah. get this concentration that we're talking about, yep. right? Increased density. And when they reach a certain density point, there are epigenetic changes that are triggered mm. and the individual organisms change, not over generations, the individuals change. The front legs get shorter, mm. the thorax gets shorter and fatter, the coloration changes, and the behavior goes from being peaceful and, and mind your own business to cannibalistic, mm. highly aggressive. They start attacking one another because they're running out of food. Now they're right. trying to eat each other. And that's what the swarm of locusts is. They're all trying to bite the one in front of them while the oh, one behind okay. them is biting okay. them. Wow. And it's just this panic-driven cloud of consumption. And, and, and that was evolved because the community eats itself. Yeah. And it can, the whole community can persist. Well, until it runs out of food because right. it swarms and eats whatever's left and then but, they all die. But the fact that it ate itself probably gave it an extended period. <laughs> Possibly. You know, because it, but I don't know how much reproducing is going on when they're swarming. Well, as long as if you, enough of an individual survive a severe drought for the colony to mm. be reestablished, it's okay. From a yeah global uh, perspective, yeah. And that, that's how bacteria do it sometimes. Huh. I mean, bacteria off themselves i mean if there's they're running out of food they will like undergo apoptosis and yeah. they'll the cells will just immolate themselves uh, and then be eaten by other bacteria and actually apoptosis is a very healthy process in humans that that we under our cells undergo when we restrict our caloric intake right and it's actually very good for prevention of cancer right and a lot of people right. think it's Occasional fasting is uh, preventive. So the, this, in a way, feeds into new ideas of what are called extended evolutionary synthesis, which are still very much Darwinian, but they're saying there's more, there's more involved than just simply the vertical descent of traits. You know, being the sole driver. There's all this other stuff. There's this is massive networking. There's epigenetics. There's horizontal gene transfer at the yeah. lowest level. And in fact. The progenote world, which the progenote was coined, a term was coined by George Fox and Carl Woese in 1977 in their paper that predicted the third branch of life, the archaea, and then Woese got the Nobel Prize. I'm going to see George Fox in Houston next week 
again because I, I went to see him two years ago during a, a conference and I sh we, we showed him the model. Like he came to our conference and he said, you have come closest to the progenote concept that, that Carl and I uh, predicted all those years ago. Hmm. Now, one of the main parts of it is that everything, what, what, what Woes described was in those days, everything was a mass that would crash together and things would join and they would donate. It was all horizontal gene transfer. There was no vertical gene transfer. It was all horizontal. So, because there were no... This is the third life form that he's talking well, about? This is actually the progenote, so the, the unit before even the three branches arose, uh -huh. uh, which they predicted. Right. And, and it seems as though George Fox believes we're on the path to actually discovering this. Like right. This is the vi most viable model he's seen for, and we'll be able to grow these in the lab and watch them work. That's going to be the exciting thing. So when, just to back up, you say third life form or third type of life. That was bacterial. So early on, there, there's this idea of LUCA or last universal common ancestor and then branching from that or these prokarya, archaea, and then sort of eukarya. And the, the, the eukaryotes are, end up being uh, the things that have the mitochondria the, 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 the big fat cell that absorbs little cells mm. and, and has organelles and it has distinct organs rather than a, a bacterium which is just a big bag of genetic material. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there. So bacteria really dominated for the longest time because it was a huge jump to go where, to the point where you had a cell that consumed another one and then that it didn't digest the other one. The other one actually learned to live in the host and it reproduced at the right moment so that when the host divided it would be in both sides. Oh. That's a trick. So your cells are doing that all the time because right. your cells can't divide <coughs> unless they have enough mitochondria hmm. to drive the energy system and then the mitochondria have to be sort of available for the two daughter cells because that's the energy source. Right. And, and you have 14 quadrillion of those in your body, but you only have a 13 trillion cells. You have a hundred trillion gut bacteria, but 14 quadrillion mitochondria that occupy your big fat cells. Hmm. And so in, in some sense, the mitochondria are the big winners. I mean, they're the big, you think of that, and they're an energy system, right? That is just making ATP. It's just an energy system. And if we think of the conscious field or we think of etheric field, or some people call it subtle body. You know, your, your partner works with this, Reiki practitioners, mm -hmm. how they can feel something around a person and then they feel it inside. Mm -hmm. Perhaps that's a huge collective effect of these 14 quadri quadrillion mm -hmm. mitochondria or something. But there's, there's some kind of, of field that we, we are now as human beings learning to go in as instruments in healing other humans or doing these things that seem like paranormal that you know in, initially it was tied to one individual having a special ability uh, that wasn't reproducible you know Joseph Cupertino levitating or something but we can't verify that but increasingly we're using actual scientific practice to try these things that seem like they're woo I mean it seems like mm -hmm but they work predictably over and over again, yeah. like, like scanning someone's system and, right. and, and reading the tra traumatic state in them. Do you know Stanley Krippner's work? 
Yeah, yeah. He's a very good friend of mine. He was one of my mentor in one grad your, school. Your mentor in grad school. Yeah, yeah. I just saw him a couple of days ago. He's He spent his life looking at these things. At these things, And, yeah. and he's sort of, I, I love his, and you and he have this in common, I think, because he sits at the nexus of these different worlds and the people in the worlds all agree that he's a trustworthy person. Yes. You know, that yeah. even though they don't trust each other, they all trust him. Yeah. So he's a, it's a beautiful and career. I'm ma I'm meeting Jeffrey Kreipal next week, who uh, is, know. he wrote, uh, he's on Esalen's board. He wrote the big book about Esalen. Uh, uh, but he, uh, he studied all his life. He studied sort of mutants and ninjas and X-Men type things in the popular culture, like the UFO phenomenon, but also mm. relating that to people with special abilities, et cetera, et cetera, and what is our current crop. And I'm gonna sit, he's at Rice University, he's actually Eric Davis's PhD advisor, if you know Eric Davis, who wrote mm. Technosis and mm. has tracked the Burning Man culture and the yeah. sort of, he's a fantastic writer. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Jeff Kripal is, uh, Looking for, uh, you know, it's interesting uh, going to see uh, movies like The Last Jedi. And there are Jedis. There are Jedi in society. There are people with amazing abilities, whether it be, you know, Tibetan Buddhist monks that start hiking over the mountains before they're called. You know, they, they, they somehow, I mean, things happen in these deep spiritual communities which are deeply grounded, where people have literally lost a lot of the structure of, of ego and attachment and language, and they start working as a group, and they start working from deep sensing, things that look like sci-fi, that look like Jedi kinds of things. I mean, that's what Star Wars is based upon, some of these, this type of, of you know, and, and these people are often doing things in secret. I mean, they're not sort of trying to do sales and marketing on these abilities, because they generally tend to lose them. But, yeah. but the, the Jedi are real in the healing arts. Yeah. Uh, sometimes they can go off and get attached to ideas or language or something, but sometimes it's a real, real thing going on. They're ahead of psychology, right? They're ahead of the practice of psychology, but now they seem to be doing sort of lockstep with the people doing fMRI brain studies, the people understanding how the nervous system works. You know, uh, because if someone goes into a triggered state from a, a childhood trauma, there's all these physiological and chemical things that are going on, but then there's this etheric field that's going on. And you can predictably operate on both. You could give someone meditations, put binaural beats onto them to calm their system at a certain frequency, but you can also do this Reiki-like energetic work, and it works predictably every time. It's just like, it's, it's completely, it's a tool. It's a technology. So it's gone from sort of a spiritual kind of, uh, you know, in the realm of black magic or, magic, or sometimes conjuring and sometimes, you know, uh, conjurers, uh, people who are a trickster kind of a thing, where it's not real, to it's now sort of a repeatable real thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, for instance, somebody like a Donald Trump or, you know, the fact that we have these highly traumatized, highly dysfunctional individuals, you know, that are so-called leadership, it, human society is going to live or die on whether we are able to deal with this. And raising children without tra traumatizing them, for one, but also dealing almost in a Jedi-like way with individuals that have, say, a, a powerful, psych like a psychopathic 
seductive power or controlling power that is going to, say, cause a nation to go down the tubes. Someone needs to face them down, and there will be in the future, uh, because the, the, con the costs are, are, are large for having somebody operating that way that's in command of an army, for example. The costs are very yeah. large. So, but, but following the threat of emergence, you were talking earlier about um, uh, children uh, being traumatized in various ways that produce different sort of personality structures, the masochistic mm. or the... They're called like character styles. I forget the author who uh. wrote the, the big book on that, character style. It seems to me that Western civilization is... Uh, certainly in its American manifestation most most strikingly, is designed to create these traumatized mm -hmm. individuals. Mm -hmm. And so, in a way, maybe it's it could be argued that the Donald Trump and or, or the just the psychopathic egomaniac, power mad, you know, king king this or king yeah, that. King that and, or, yeah. um, you that is the sort of personality that that emerges from this system, yeah. whether it's a political, cultural, yeah. whatever, yeah. You know, family, whatever. All this stuff coming together creates this kind of person who rises to a position of leadership of this system that we're calling a civilization or a culture. And so, of course, he, or generally he, leads it in a direction ever further in this pathological yep. direction yep. Pathological, and so yeah. you know you're saying we need to find a way to deal with it and change it and all that but you know the whole premise that civilization is progress is something i'm very suspicious of mm -hmm. personally mm -hmm. and so i kind of feel like isn't our destruction an emergent property of civilization itself, mm -hmm. because every civilization has has wiped itself out eventually, or been wiped out by, you know, drought or whatever the conditions were, which gets us to the Fermi paradox, right? Yeah, you know. So, what's your take on the? Do you do you see that what's it called the Great Filter that that the technology gets ahead of the philosophical development of life forms, and that's why they all burn out? I think that's the most common explanation. I think I think that I, I tend to use sort of a histrionic approach, uh, which is in uh, Brownlee's book, that book right there, Peter Ward and Brownlee's book, uh, Rare Earth, where. If you look at what huh. had to stack up for complex life to rise, it's amazingly improbable to get complex life. So in those warm little pools, yes, you're going to have planets with, with liquid, like hydrospheres that are stable for a period of time. You can have pools that cycle and an engine can lift life, but you're going to get microbial mats. And between the time of microbial mats after the pro progenean transitioning into the microbial world, it's three to four billion years of stable Earth, but not so stable because it froze over three or four times because there was no uh, control of the climate by the, the by living life. world. Right. So something bad happens, like a big asteroid impact, a huge amount of volcanism or freeze-over events, which right. are terrible because when you have a frozen world it reflects all the sunlight and it stays cold it's, it's ever colder oh. so you can be locked in 
Uh, Venus, on the other hand, went boiled its oceans straight into its atmosphere early on because it had just too much incident solar radiation. And then that became a CO2 hell, a uh, hothouse how hell. It, how did it get liquid water in the first place if oh, it was that um, hot? Easy. Uh, well, say, for instance, in the early solar system, uh, the sun is a lot weaker. Oh, I see. So it, it, okay. And, and there would have been lots of liquid water. See, even on Venus, as the mantle cooled, the water's just going to come out of those rocks. And then oh, comets. It comes out. So comes it's like out. condensation or something. Yeah, as, as you'll notice in uh, as volcanic uh, lava flows cool, there's lots of steam. And they're, they're letting go of uh, water that was bound up in the rocks as the rocks cool and solidify. I read somewhere that all the water on Earth came from space. Well, it, it was believed that there's a contribution. So there would be a contribution from lots of icy sort of comet kind right. of impacts. But the, the majority of it now is believed it just came out of the mantle. Oh really? Yeah. Okay, so it's it's an it was a sort of integrated into the yeah, original just, magma. That... Yeah, it's just a component of rock that's solidifying certain see. mafic kinds of lava flows. So as the mantle cools, more water is produced. It's, it's, it's accumulating, and it could have been that most of that was water vapor in the atmosphere, and then one over a short period of time it rained down. So that's one model. Venus, it it uh, it was just too hot. Uh, Mars had liquid oceans, maybe not oceans, but lakes or salty lakes, and it still has ice caps, polar ice caps. But Mars lost all that because it was too far out, didn't have a magnetic field to protect its atmosphere from being stripped away. Mm. So Mars lost its liquid water. And but so, we're sure now that it had it? Yeah, pretty much. I based mean, on the currents and... Curiosity is drove through a great big salt lake bed on the way to Mount Sharp. You know, and there's definitely there's there's water influence minerals everywhere, and, and there's a polar ice cap made out of water ice. Oh, right. So so, but it basically the atmosphere is almost a vacuum now. Right. Mars is a terrible place to try to set up any human settlements. Yeah. Uh, just like the wrong place. It's it's got a lot of problems, but so so here you have this planet that was in the sweet zone. It was what they call the Goldilocks zone. It wasn't too hot. Wasn't too cold. And you had long enough time to kickstart microbial life, but that that's no guarantee. So if, if microbial life had started on Venus, see you later. If it started on Mars, it had to go into the deep rocks to continue a no evolutionary future, because you know you need a lot more vibrant planet to drive mm -hmm. evolution. Right. So here we have this place with liquid oceans, and still it went through these traumatic experiences. It had to have plate tectonics. <coughs> We had this big moon that mm. protected us from impacts. You know, the big craters on the moon are, would have been craters here, mm. right? It, it was it was like a vacuum. So it just drew, yeah, drew the. It drew, and and Jupiter drew all that material out, the asteroid belt material out as Jupiter moved right, out. Right. And that was a lucky chance. So what Brownlee and Ward are arguing is that Earth, uh, that perhaps microbial life is common. It can be found. It's mostly sequestered. It's mostly in dead ends with planets that moved out of their habitable zones. But complex life, with all the steps we needed in the right order to get to complex cells alone, to get an oxygen atmosphere, to get to plants and animals, is extremely rare. And then to get to intelligence, big enough brains selected for, you know, look at the our our history from dividing from chimps and bonobos and you know you talk about this in the book too 
you know, Africa had to split down the middle with the Rift Valley to throw Artipithecus into the savanna to make her, you know, she's already bipedal, but to make us adapt to the dry conditions. What if Africa had never had the Rift Valley? You know, we'd, mm -hmm. we'd just be another ape community and apes were going extinct. You know, uh, monkeys are, are, are much more uh, effective food gatherers mm. than apes. So apes worldwide, as, as humans were rising, ape populations were crashing because monkeys have sentries, they have uh, all these different jobs, and they're incredibly good at coming into an area and just stripping it of food. So basically they were eating our lunch, and the advantages of, of, of large-brained animals like us mm. were turned into disadvantages, mm. so it's quite possible that primates would have just gone extinct if it wasn't for, you know, the human line. They, they were going extinct, and partly because the, um, the equatorial rainforest belts are getting thinner and thinner, because the planets are running out of vitality. It's, it's, the planet is uh, coming toward the curve which will take us into Venus. And Lovelock thinks it's only 100 million years from now. Mm. So the planet is, is getting big bald spots, like us guys at 56, you know. Mm. Earth is way past middle age, so the biodynamism of Earth is, is really crashed, in the, in, especially in the last eight, nine million years. And you think that's part of a natural process as opposed to a response to environmental yeah. degradation. Yeah, and we're, we come on in on top of that, so mm. we're in an interglacial period, right? But the glacial, the glaciations are deadly for the biota of the Earth. I mean, you're talking a third of the planet covered by this scraping ice and pushing all the biota especially for, for land animals, it's really, really tough. Uh, and, and does that have any beneficial effect of that increased density that we were talking it, about earlier? It can. I mean, everything drives evolution. So, yeah. so it certainly drove ours, you know, but it, it was thought, it's thought now that human populations crashed down to a very small group somewhere in South Africa. There was this neck down, right? Around 70,000 years ago? Something like that. That's uh, the, the Toba eruption, right? Yeah, it could have been an eruption, certainly on top of glaciations and things like this. And the Blombos Caves, which are somewhere between 120 and 180, yeah. the, the anatomically modern human is sort of seen in the Blombos Caves yeah. with, with counting systems and all that sort of stuff. But it, it could have been, you know, look at that. I mean, mitochondrial Eve, we have a common mother. We have a single mut mutant female that is, whose genes conquered all of the hominid lines. Who, whose genes were so powerful that mitochondrial Eve, right? Every mitochondria in your body contains the DNA from one woman. And when they looked, they found there's no human alive that does not contain, it's not based upon her DNA. So she was some kind of a mutant that was so much, her genes were so much more effective that it, it conquered the entire planet. This, and so can you imagine, I mean, the probability of all these things, so if you stack them up, you know, you know how you stack up probabilities, you know, that dice roll happening, well, let's see, we want these six, six sixes in a row. You know, the probabilities can be worked out. But what if you had a trillion rolls of the dice, of the evolutionary dice, and that had to do with climatology and geology, and, yeah. and, and we are so rare, we're so incredibly rare. And so the Fermi paradox is, total, I think, completely explainable by just looking back at what we're now piecing together of the extraordinary rarity mm. that we are. And it can replace all religious experience in a sense that when you, when you 
try to grok this and you realize, oh my God, we're, in, you know, we're incredibly rare and unique. And you realize, oh my God, we're, carry we're the carriers of this whole thing. In the cosmos, there's so little of what we are that we're like one of the sole avatars for it. Because if we're so rare, we're probably very widely distributed in space and time. Mm. So un unless we believe that we're encountering aliens every night somehow, uh, as far as, as an animal that's doing what we're doing and figuring out quantum fundamentals and stuff, extremely rare. We may be the only example. In, in the entire... In the entire history of the cosmos. Right. We, we might. There's a chance. I mean, the, so I had a... I challenged the cosmos one night. You know, I did one of my thought experiments, and I, I went through the origin of life. This is one of the... One of my thought experiments, I became the first... I be, to do a thought experiment effectively, you just... You let yourself dissolve. This is what I started to do when I was nine. But you let your entire system just disappear. I'm doing it a little bit right now, like I'm de-rezzing. Yeah. So I'm joining, yeah, there it is. Now I'm joining to the field. And then this field can guide you with intention. So I might say, what do I do? And the field always says, become it. Like, what, what was your intention? The field says, remind me, what was your intention? Oh, origin of life. Well, let me put you into the thought experiment. And then I'll see the protocell with, like, the neon lit up polymers, you know, in this dream, dream state. And then it'll just say, become it now. You'll just become it. And then you just are it. And then you go through the experience. And in that case, I died. You know, I, went, I blacked out completely, and then I came to. When I came to, it was like this screaming, tearing thing was going on. My, my protocellular body was being ripped apart. But that was the moment of the origin of life, was that first division. And that's what I worked backwards from, as I saw these crazy molecular things going on. And as my ethereal body was being ripped apart, the piece that was torn off was dead. It was full of a black lumen. And then I was alive. And so I got the transmission. And then I worked for months like, wait a minute, death wrote the code of life. It was failed cell divisions over and over and over again that wrote the code to allow a successful cell division. But this can't happen for a cell on its own. Oh, it was in a community and it was cycling. And there were trillions of them snuggled next to each other and they were all trying this experiment all at once. And then one day it worked. And so death literally wrote the code of life from the beginning. It still does. It's called natural selection. Right? It's writing the code constantly. So, mm. so that, that's the, the, my technique, is just become it. And because you can't, your logical, rational brain cannot crack these problems. You have to rely upon a bigger system. So do you, like, Obviously, some, if someone meets you or, or reads about your career, um, you know, the, the sort of uh, stock response is that's a really smart guy, high IQ guy, right? NASA, this, the origins of life, you're doing high IQ kind of stuff. Do you attribute your capacities to, like, 
like do you have unusually high processing capabilities or is it more to this ability to trance out and mm -hmm. let go actually of what we consider to be yeah. IQ related processing? Yeah, it's that. And and it started I think it started in utero. So the mm. fundamental we were coming back to this, like what is my fundamental boot up programming? Yeah. It was when the love connection dropped. I was had no connection. So here's this embryonic form reaching out. It's where is the love? You know, where is the connection? And it's searched. And I've had other experiences where I'm literally in my crib in the adoption ward and I I I've got a flash of a real experience I had, my vision turning on. I experienced that again. I, I was able to sort of go in and re-experience my vision turning on. It's crazy, like 3D vision, because babies, they can't really see depth yeah. in the beginning, but I, I went through that. And when that happened, my entire consciousness sort of went up out of the hospital, it went to the limb of the earth. You know, it, it was that type of a consciousness because of this rupture, this tearing apart. In the sense, I was torn apart from my mother, and I was birthed in a new way. And so that, in some ways, I was this weird kid, you know. I was pretty much semi-autistic, you know, not making eye contact, the whole thing. Um, but I was in these very, very powerful dream worlds all the time, because it started so early. Did you suffer a lot as a kid because of this difference? Uh, I had to avoid, you know, avoid other kids. I mean, that was like, found them to be very barbarous. And so I was always skirting the edge of the playground, like trying to stay out. Right. But I built my own internal worlds that right. I could live in. You know? Were there adults in your life who, who helped you and supported you? I had a very, you? not really, no. Uh, mm. I had a very loving parents, very intelligent father. Uh, depression era parents, a good solid, you know, nuclear family, just solid. Um, father, very high, highly intelligent. They just let me do what I wanted to do. If I didn't want to do piano, then I could quit piano. And I was just in my own world. And you want to do all your drawings? Do all your drawings. I drew, drew these in, immense planetscapes starting at about age 12. Because mm. these are worlds I was in, I just started drawing them and drawing them. Did you get into dinosaurs and cowboys and Indians and stuff, or you went straight for the? I, I uh, dinosaurs were fascinating to me mm. because, like, whoa, look at that world—the right. world of another world, two hundred million yeah. years ago—and yeah. it was pulled my imagination back. It was like all trees were ferns. That's cool. Mm. You know, when did angiosperms come in? Yeah. So it was a realming thing. It was like where the imagination could go. Yeah. Yeah. I had a similar experience. I moved a lot. My family moved a lot, and so I didn't have a you know, mm. community. So I got into my own head a lot. And uh, with me, it was Native Americans. I just got obsessed. I wore, I'd come home from school and wow. put on my loincloth and wow. you know, wear that till I had to get put on normal clothes and go back to school. And I mean, I really believed I was an American Indian just born in the wrong time in the wrong and place. Time. Wow. Yeah. But you're moving to a, to a time and a place where there were no people. So yeah. you're like beyond human consciousness. In a way. Well, I, I took two, two missions, one when I was 14, one when I was 16. So when I was 14, I was walking in the, the springtime in near Kamloops, this frozen ground, you know, it's in the Great White North, you know, after all. 
and I saw a mariposa lily coming out of the ground. I thought, that's so beautiful. And that came, that beautiful three-part structure came from a simple bulb or seed. So how did that happen? And then I stood up and like, all these plants, they're coming from simple things and they're growing into this incredible beauty every time. But they all go back to one starting thing. And I stood up and like, that's what I'm going to work on. Mm. How could simple molecules come together and create this? And then I remembered that Albert Einstein had done thought experiments. Like when he was 16, he, I think he was riding his bike or something. He was like, closed his eyes and he was running alongside a beam of light. Yeah, I remember that. You know, if you could ride a beam of light. If you could yeah. ride a beam of light. And he saw sort of the compression and the things, and that led to special relativity. Right. And I thought, well, I can do that. You know, that's pretty easy to do thought experiments. <laughs> yeah. So I just, oh, I just sort of, in a sense, waited. Mm. And my system was really open. And then I saw this bundle of molecules in my third eye. It was like, whoa. And they were moving around. And now I realize, okay, this is it. It's being delivered, right? This is delivered from some other place. Uh, whether it's my, I don't know. I'm not going to ask where or how. Mm. I'm not going to question this. And I was about to ask it, you know, how could you self-assemble into, into the living world? How could simple parts start whatever? And it said, figure, it said to me, figure out how we made a copy of ourselves. And my little brain flashed to like a vision of an automobile factory. So, well, to make an automobile, you need a whole factory. You need a big machine to make a copy of a little machine. So it's like, it's a non-starter. This is not a solvable problem. And it, and it winked. It said, that's your challenge. <laughs> and 2013 is when I saw it. I saw the cycling protocells and realized, oh, it's a network of simple machines collaborating can lift the big machine into existence from the bottom up and this is how it worked chemically and mm. this is this is replicable this is testable and i i saw this after basically a yoga and breath work session mm. at, you know three months after that initial vision of becoming the dividing protocell and now i was working backwards from division saying anything that allows a protocell to divide is on the path to life everything else can be discarded Mm. It was as a way to discipline because mm, right. the field is full of all these wacky proposals. Right. So it's, it, okay, but how do you get cell division? Well, you have to have a machine that is testing trillions of protocells and allowing them to experiment. And then I saw the three-way cycle uh, in this thought experiment. I wrote a long email to Dave and did all these drawings. And he says, you found it. Did you, you know him at the time? Yeah. Oh, okay. I'd known him for about three years. And oh. he was training me in the chemistry. Oh, right. So right. I wrote, I, so I took my visionary models before I knew the chemistry in the, in the early 2000s. And, and he trained me to how to lodge them into real things. Hmm. And had me looking through microscopes and doing stuff and reading papers. And so when I wrote this piece to him in 2013, it had pretty much the language that he'd use. And he said... You found it. You found the kinetic trap. Mm, kinetic so trap. The kinetic right, trap. Where the energy is replicated and reformed. And reformed, and you don't yeah. lose structure. You build it. Right. So that was that was commitment number one. Commitment number two. When I was sixteen, was I was standing there and like the peace movement was or the eco movement was going. This is like nineteen seventy eight. I thought, you know what? That's all hopeless. No matter what they think. 
humans are going to consume the planet. We are going to turn it in, we're going to gird it in glass and steel. We are going to completely freaking transform it. There's nothing going to stop us. We're going to take all the energy, we're just going to do it. Because there's this huge drive and nothing's going to slow this down. No good, good intended thoughts by hippies is going to help. It's going to change this outcome. Therefore, the, the, only, the only rational and logical approach is to allow the, the extension of the biosphere out. So, which, which means, and I'd watched the Apollo moon landing, it was all well and good, but I said the big, the big mission is to allow the biosphere to reproduce, ah, the whole biosphere. To green a planet. To green a planet or to create new worlds. And it turns out greening a planet is really a non-starter. Really? Uh, you know, Mars or Venus, forget about it. Just but can't we, hold we, the atmosphere? It's, they're dead. Mm. I mean, the, 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 there's no uh, there's no vitality and there's no way to give them the vitality. Mm. But so then I started working on space. So I said, okay, I have two two objectives. One is to figure out how life uh, came into being in the first place, and the second is to give it a future path. And given how rare the Earth is, that that future path would be. I'm just checking your levels here. I think it's still getting it. Yeah, just, just little bounces. So that, that future path can be through us. We can be Gaia's reproductive organs because we went to the moon. We carried a bunch of biology there. You know, still, like, there's probably bacterial films inside the LEM body, right? Just as there are in the Mars rovers. Mm. So I committed to working on this problem as well, how to open the solar system, both for human civilization, but we'll carry life with us and how to do it on a massive scale. And I signed up for Gerard O'Neill's organization at Princeton that was talking about build, building space colonies. This was in the late 70s. And then I had this objective of, of doing work for NASA, and that started in 1999. I did, you know, I did 15 years, 25 projects for them. They hired our team, they funded us to do, simulate everything, uh, every mission, past and present and future. So then I could use my realm bending little brain. Okay, I can explore the solar system. I can map the whole thing in my head and I can map every mission, every strut, every airbag, every airlock, every piece of a space station, every procedure, every thrust technology. I'll just get, I'll just memorize all that. And then I can design anything really rapidly. And at this table in 2007, in January 2007, 10 years ago, there was a guy from Johnson Space Center who arrived and I'd already been doing eight, nine years of work. I was sort of a known person within that community and he said, the administrator has decided to take the constellation, he wants us to figure out if the constellation moon hardware can go to another destination in the solar system, like asteroids. But we're civil servants, we can't use our imaginations, you know, that's <laughs> a high risk, but you're not. And you do all these things, and I literally in half an hour I drew, drew out the entire architecture that's on the cover of Popular Science you see over there. So I realized I can do this thing. And that was used to steer NASA away from the moon and toward asteroids in 2009. And it was my designs of how to get a spacecraft near an asteroid and then tether it down and have uh, ops from astro astronauts and crew and everything, and I was able to then do this level of design. And then in 2014, 13-14, the breakthrough, while we were having the breakthrough in the origin of life, 
I had the breakthrough on encapsulating asteroids in a balloon structure, uh, working with two collaborators, Peter Janeskins from SETI Institute, who's a, a meteor astronomer, and Julian Knott from Santa Barbara, who's the world's greatest balloon designer. Hmm. He designs all the balloons, like the Red Bull balloon, where people jump out of. Right. That's his work. And so together in six weeks, we designed Shepard, which is this amazing system to put an encapsulation around an asteroid, put gases in, so it stops the tumbling through friction in the gas. Think of a balloon that's blown up around a, mm -hmm. a rock in space. not touching it. Not touching, because right. these things are a thousand tons and they're full of boulders that will come off and destroy you. You can't touch them, you can't drill into them, you can't put a cable around them. Mm. So a lot of these asteroid mining companies are just nonsense. Mm. They have no clue what they're talking about. Because mm. they never talked to Peter Janiskins, who knows about meteors. You know, he knows about near-Earth objects and these things. So we then figured out in a flash of insight was, wait a minute, this allows us to create little worlds. Because we can not only encapsulate these, mm. we can move them with gas pressure, winds, like a sailing ship. We can change their orbits. We can locate them all over the solar system. We can then extract water ice and volatiles into tanks, create fueling stations. We can take the nickel and the iron out using gas electroforming, which is an industrial technique. You can actually 3D image parts, like large parts in space, through gas mining alone. It's a well-known technique. And then the third is you could make a, uh, an asteroid into a biosphere by simply finding one that's like 30% water and a bunch of carbonaceous stuff, amino acids, whatever, melting that thing down and keep it in, in a, a globule and the rock will go into the center and then you inoculate it with life. And now you have a biosphere you can farm. So we can build large uh, structures in space. We can build big base blocks and stuff. We can get water, consumables, you name it, in huge quantity, collect solar energy, and we can also live. So this single invention is the way to open the solar system to life. And then it struck me, like last year, I said, wait a minute, these are the same thing. The origin of life is a bunch of protocells forming in a pool, and there's a bloom of them. And then they create innovations, and then they this community and the internetworking lifts life into being. But if you had a high-speed camera on a, on a UFO watching the solar system and using something like Shepard, you would see this explosion of these encapsulations that gobbled up all these little planetesimals and old dead comet heads and whatever, surrounded them with encapsulation and started harvesting from them moving them around, centralizing them around the home planet, around Mars, whatever. And then there was this explosion of biology rocketing off the Earth, and it would look the same as the origin of life. It's the same techniques. It's encapsulation and, and selection and, and harvesting of the same material allows life to then have a future in the solar system. So we can expand our civilization. We can have you know, 100 billion humans. We could build immense structures, an infinite amount of energy and some infinite amount of surface space in these interior structures. You could just, it's Jerry O'Neill's idea. But th then that gives a, a future path for the evolution of life in the cosmos. So if we're super rare, right, we find out we're super rare and we get, oh my God, we're so special. And not like church lady special, you know, <laughs> we're so special. Yeah. But, 
but yeah. it is imperative it is imperative it is our duty to continue complex life the rare thing that we are and yes we, we need to pay our mortgages and do mm. our like silly things but this is the one thing that we owe this incredible probability engine that made us it's like we see you you know if, if there's anything called god it's this incredible probability engine that made this extraordinary thing that what what we are and our, our planet is we owe it to that engine to say help we can ask it help us to propagate you into the future and when you when you de-res and you go into the field you're saying you know i'm just going to put myself on the shelf and i'm going to contact this miracle of what this is and say can you like help us little monkeys because you know we're just barely here but we realize you know we're on the, the tipping point of, of, of either destroying our system or worse lock-in which is worse that's I think our true fate is lock-in or we can sail up we can we can expand this this thing this experiment and keep it going and going and going eggs out of one L lock in is we don't go anywhere else lock-in is we so you know there's all the you know the the doomsayer the sort of Christian apocalyptic Jewish apocalyptic thing was the world always has to end in some big disaster which you know is now climate change right that's the big thing but what in truth what is actually happening and this is when I travel around the world from Pukalpa and Peru to Islamabad Pakistan this last trip I went to uh, Galapagos then Quito and then the Middle East and I went to Islamabad and then mm. I went to Shanghai in Hong Kong and then back here that was in November God damn yeah you need and, someone to carry your bags <laughs> sure <laughs> but uh, what I notice everywhere and I do this every once in a while to see what's actually going on because I don't watch media at all mm. uh, no news media zilch I have a hundred percent no media diet mm. because then it allows me clarity so the only news I have is direct contact with people or going to places. Right. So it's allowed me to have a different perspective. So what I'm seeing is lock-in is occurring. So for example, Pukalpa, fastest growing jungle town. Uh, it's 350,000 people now and it's growing incredibly fast. It's this grid, little motorcycle taxis everywhere where we used to go and do our medicine work in the jungle is now all pipe gas pipeline roads and it's all stripped like all the way up there right around this beautiful area is gone and so they're converting the jungle into kind of Pukalpa and everyone's on smartphones everyone's doing four jobs trying to earn more soles you go to Islamabad Islamabad's uh, a kleptocracy right it's B-52s, drone attacks, you know, geopolitical hotspot, uh, but it's developing just like Pukalpa and what they're building is Beria Town. So Beria Town is a half a million people that has its own generating plant for reliable electricity, uh, internet, security, so you don't get blown up. Everything's there, shopping centers, uh, mosques, everything. Everyone's trying to get into Beria Town and it's like several hundred thousand equivalent US dollar it's, it's expensive so it's everyone's trying to get there and in Shanghai it's one great big massive you know a, a billion people have come out of rice paddy farming in 25 years into urban living that's lock-in and all of the dominers 
and all of the intentional communities and all of those things that you, you know, I just did a numbers in my head, like if you add all that up, it doesn't equal the economic power and the effect on people that one large shopping center has. It doesn't add up to a single large shopping center. And though they're opening a new one every four hours worldwide, mm. right? So we are building shopping centers. We, we're building living spaces locked into shopping centers, locked into networks, time, uh, nanosecond to nanosecond, time attention gra uh, thing that started with water clocks, whatever, in the 10th century for monks. We're all synchronized. We're all like in this system. That's lock-in. It's total. It's chemical. It's biochemical. It's uh, the food system. We're not going to starve. Um, Pakistan is the Indus civilization where there was, when that was beginning, there was less than a million people there and it was a garden. Now it's a complete wasteland. There's a single banyan tree that I found where Buddha used to walk. There's only one left. And there used to be tens of thousands of these trees. But there's now 210 million people there, all being fed, you know, more food, healthcare, and smartphones. It's coming from somewhere. It's coming from this grid that just is able to deliver. So I think we're, we're going to be able to deliver those needs, but we're going to lock people into these, you know, tower apartments above shopping centers all over the world. And it's like a forward thrust. I mean, it's so rapid. Yeah. And that's lock-in and, and it, it's it's a psychological i mean it's 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 total because no one can see any viewpoint they can't see beyond the next building they cannot see beyond what's on their phone yeah and so you don't have any perspective uh and and it's so pervasive uh so lock-in is 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 the likely is what is occurring mm. So, so you have this this machine, the Matrix, in a way. Right. That's, that, I was going to ask you yeah, about that. But it's much more insidious. It's much more interesting than the vision of the Matrix. Uh, but this is like a substructure of civilization, and this started with the Industrial Revolution, of course. You know, so mm. the, here's the thing. Here's here's our here's our our thing. If if you have say five billion people in this locked-in system. Uh, do you still have anything left? Do you still have any visionary thinking? Do you have any out-of-the-box thinking? Uh, is, it, is it controlled by psychopaths or marketeers, which are kind of a psychopath? Um, where, you know, what, where does that thin layer that's left that isn't locked into consumer culture, that isn't, you know, an example of mine is, is a friend of mine, she's the seventh child of a Mormon family. Right? And so her family's giant. Each of, each of her brothers and sisters has seven, eight kids, and they're all in lock-in, right? They're all, they're in this bizarre religious lock-in, they're in this commercial lock-in, and she's the weird mutant that left, right? Yeah. She, she moved down here, and she's this oddball. She, she doesn't want kids, because she doesn't want to be in that thing. And she's now looking around for the nephews and nieces that are the mutants to try to extract a few of them out because that family, you know, it's a total system. Yeah. And there's, there's, that's it. That's the end of the evolution of that Do you family. see hope in, you were talking about Pucallpa, Casilda was just in Pucallpa, in Pucallpa yeah. doing a dieta with the shamans that she met down there. Uh, do you see hope in that, in, in, in the 
reemergence, getting back to mm-hmm. our earlier conversation of this psychedelic revolution, you know, Terrence mm-hmm. McKenna's stoned ape theory, right. like maybe we're restoning the ape for right, right. a second kind of quantum leap. So at, at times I've asked, you know, entities about this. The clearest thing that I've got is that there's the clearest vision I came with. It wasn't asking an entity. I just saw it one night in Australia. Is is this these curves that are going up? So this curve on this side is is the thing you see. It's lock in. It's anxiety. It's crazy fake news. It's everything. It's this whole thing that dialed in, but it can only rise if it has something to push against. Hmm. So. It's pushing against another force that's very invisible. And that's the force of the rise of these powerful Eleusinian-type experiences that have roared back, right? Uh, Powerful healing arts. Powerful uh, people that aren't taking medicines or doing healing arts. They're just freaking dialed in. I mean, it's not just Philip K. Dick having his dental surgery go crazy and... You know, it's it's people who are actually. <laughs> I don't know about that. Yeah, this, I know who he is or was. I yeah, guess it all these guys had dental post. It was him and it was L. Ron Hubbard, right? That created uh, these the Scientology. Yeah. yeah. That, so, uh, but that's sort of the whacked out people of forty years ago. Right. There's whacked out people who are connected with some something, and I, I call it generally a the field, who are tied in. And this whole thing is going like this, and this is why I go to the festivals. This is some of my festival gear. I do. We met at Burning Man. Yes. Yeah. 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 Yeah, That's right. We were in contact earlier. I don't remember. Someone put us in touch, but someone put us in touch. We met in person at Burning Man. And the pyramid. So the shows that we were doing at the pyramid at Playa Alchemist, and I just wrote to Chris and Mark Lee and everything about, are we doing anything this year? Because I'd like to produce three nights of really fantastic content. Hmm. Burning Man, has, all that type of thing has died at Burning Man. Yeah. But so I'm going to places like the Eclipse Festival and, and Burning Man to find these mutants, to find these people. Because what's happening, so as the, these two things are going up, right, they, they, the separation between them is getting thinner. The membrane is thinner. So you find young people that can pop around. Mm. They can they can do this sort of realm bending trick. They can do this where they go in and they go and they see it all. Like they're like geniuses on the net. They see all the the huge fake news sphere and they're they're wise to it, right? So in a sense they're in command because they're different. They're evolved differently. They're because of the sheer amount of stuff that's come through here. But there is some future, and call it a, it's not an eschaton, and it's not a prediction of a singularity, but there's a state in which there's so much madness, but there's so much clarity, because madness engenders clarity. You know, the, the mutant, the wizard, needs the insane empire to, to deal with, to develop skills, right? Mm. The Jedi or the whatever, samurai or whatever, they need that kind of like, but they're going to rise up, and the whole, all of humanity is going to hit a sort of a crest, crescent point. It's going to hit a crest, where I call it a crescendo, sort of a, like an orchestral crescendo, where so many voices are going, and we're going to we have an opportunity to to almost like with complete cognitive overload, 
which is what happens to astronauts, for instance, when they get cognitive overload, they black out. We're, we're going to reach a cog state where uh, it's going to blur. Everything's going to start blurring between the lines of all the madness and the anxiety and the fakeness, but all these incredibly powerful spiritual tools and future generations that can pop back and forth and that have awareness. They can observe and watch it because they've developed the skill of separating themselves and saying, ah, oh, you know, that's the great the, the Tibetan Buddhist practice. Of, are we doomed to always have the two parts? We, we, we are, and it's the question of how do we use them to evolve ourselves. Mm. And so the game is very is is very high right now and it's going to be much higher in 30 or 40 years but if we're so rare if we're so extraordinarily rare and we may be one of the only examples there's a system there's a field that's rising that that comes from everything it comes from our technology our brains everything all of life but it's non-locally connecting with this thing i think called the cosmos and this is when i've had this conversation with the cosmos and it's basically told, the cosmos has told me one night, it threw the cosmos at my consciousness, like star fields and galactic clusters, because I asked it, what was the thing that made life? Because I went through the origin and saw the molecules moving, and I had just enough juice left in me, and this is an endo experience, like, well, there isn't supposed to be an intelligence, and I felt an intelligence moving those molecules. Like I felt a hand doing it, I could feel it. But there wasn't supposed to be anything, it's a purely mechanical universe. So I sat up and I asked, this is when you're talking like the big ineffable, not some spirit or whatever, it's like the big thing, it's like the totality. Like what, uh, then what's going? And I sit up for the answer and the jungle turned into star fields and it came into my field and everything rushed toward me and like, into my consciousness like this and I just like knock completely down and the answer was this is what you're asking this is what did this has agency this grew to this size to make you you know don't ask any more dumb questions <laughs> and, and and you can't grok the size but probabilistically yeah this thing grew to create this which so, was going to ask the question. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and then get you know, these silly questions. <laughs> get slapped in the face. Slapped in the face. So, uh, yeah. so there's a there's stake. There's like the game is on. And what I'm trying to do, you know, I realm back to the origin of life, solve that problem. I, I'm, I'm now trying to tweak, trying to get Shepard funded. Like Elon's a complete madman and, and it won't happen through him. Unfortunately, he's just a fantasy land hmm. craziness I I may go see Jeff Bezos but I think China is what's going to build it's going to open the solar system the Chinese space program will do it hmm. so I ha I'm now literally with this intention it's part of the reason I'm going to China is to get into the right room with the right people to deliver this intellectual property and somebody will snap I'm like they'll invest 30 years in it with all the trials and errors they don't have a political cycle. Mm. They've got 150,000 young people in their program. It's like mm. the 60s, the Apollo program. Mm -hmm. Like they've a, a huge amount of respect for. A lot of hunger for recognition and national pride yeah. to keep that country together. And, yeah, and they're going to lose the space station. They've lost telemetry with it. It's going to re-enter. Oh, really? Yeah, well, yeah. whatever. But they'll, yeah. 
So China may be the mechanism to right. to do this. I I like I need to set that in motion yeah. because that's not going to happen till the 2050s. Like those things are going to fly in the late 2030s into the 2040s, the the demonstrator flights, and and once that launches, once somebody brings 10,000 tons of fuel into low Earth orbit, they change all the dynamics of the space business, and it's just a regular, it'll be just like the regular old mining industry. You'll have a prospector mission to identify a target. You'll sell the claim right. to a development company, which will go and get it. And they'll get there'll be futures contracts on 50,000 tons of water. By the time it's in Earth orbit, it's cracked into hydrogen and oxygen. It you have a fueling station. It's worth X. And mm -hmm. China is could book in because China is building the infrastructure in Asia. They're they're putting three trillion into CPAC now yeah. of our debt. Yeah, and and this it's Asia, it's East Africa, everything. Yeah. So, so that's that's sort of the the game is the game is you know I'm a player. I'll be here, create these ideas into the culture. Oh, and back to the Copernican revolution. Mm. So in the culture itself, the generative engine, that thing you saw in Scientific American, that thing going wet, dry, moist, that that turning cycle that the person that made this comment uh, that it could be a new a second Copernican revolution, I realize they're right because it's a recentering of, of so many fields. It recenters biology on almost like a Taoist thing that you need a cycling system for everything, mm. but that the common ancestor was a, never an individual competing. It was a cooperative unit. That rolls into social Darwinism. Right. It rolls out survival of the fittest it, it rolls all those victorian ideas out which, which economics it rolls into economics yeah see this is where you come in because this idea can go so many ways it's like it's at the hub and it goes all the spokes mm. so in the last so in the last few months i've been in, put in touch with terence deacon uh, i went to see ken wilbur you know in his apartment in uh, denver and we talked for three hours and he had read everything. Mm. And he said, this is like the spiral that goes back down to the start point. And I said, yeah, we can study the emergence of everything from this. It's the boot up. And it comes out of freaking materialist reductionist science. Chemists, the most hardcore non-woo people on the planet, right? They are. And they are gonna, they're going to be, their imaginations are sparked. Like next week, I'm co-chairing the Gordon Research Seminar in Galveston with 60 graduate student and postdocs. And that generation, and, and then after that, I'm doing a talk at the bio, Conscious Biotechers in San Francisco, but them getting excited, like, not only is there about six Nobel Prizes in the work, you know, more than even Carrie Mullis, because, but it's a passionate, it, it's like almost a spiritual quest. Mm. So... It's like so interesting too, intellectually. You know what's going to happen in the progenote. So there's several uh, new lab young investigators are now thinking like, we could do progenotes with synthetic bio. Bio. We don't have to wait for random sequencing. I'll make a piece of RNA that I know, and we'll put them in, and we'll just cycle. And I said, yeah, you can own this science, progenote science. You will own it, and it will win you the Nobel Prize or somebody but it will generate a whole branch of chemistry away from equilibrium chemistry, brand new chemistry. It'll generate machines that can do chemical search engines for pharma. 
it'll roll into philosophy. Mm. It'll roll it roll into metaphysics. You know, Ken Wilber's like, whoa, this completes my model, my mm. life's work, because this is the holon generator. This is the four quadrant thing. This is that where spiral dynamics starts. And so his his imagination is going. It's like a big bang point or something. It's the big bang point. Yeah. It is. Mm. And so and, and, and it's at the center of so many fields. AI. And when we talked about AI yeah. just being fast table lookup. Right. What if we could build computing systems that were on that principle? They would be they would be capable of open ended emergence, self programming through evolution, not through hackers like making a better road tracking algorithm for Tesla. Mm. which is just a fast table lookup. It's not AI at all. Mm. So we now have a model in chemistry that could be replicated in silicon to do true AI for the first time. So we have basically, this is the alchemist's dream. This is the thing. Mm. And because it can go into technology this way and philosophy that way and change our political economy this way and mm. It talks to physics this way, it talks to chemistry, it talks to material science. It's like it's a whole new, like, you can make industrial technologies based on this. Like, in a week and a half when I'm doing conscious biotechers, there's all these investors there. I'm going to say, there are at least 50 startups, 50, that could be funded and will generate all new things for a huge, for medical science and for pharma and for everything based on this cycling system. And Dave has Dave invented nanopore sequencing. That's an, it's an, worth a two billion dollar company in Oxford, England. Now makes the box that Dave invented this thing in the 80s, and it's just the first spin out. So there's like an economic sector that will come mm. out of this. And so I'm going to present it to the conscious biotechers and say, let's make a working group, and let's you know, so to try to start an industrial sector. Yeah. So it really is. I mean, as you said, it's 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 21st century's alchemy, mm. um, and and so my whole mission in the next five years is to go and tell this story, and why it's such a, a honor to be on your podcast is to bring this news, and oh. I call it a new gospel. Yeah, it's a new good news right. because it's like, hey, we may have found how we came into being, and how we roll, and how the whole planet rolls everything we we found the creator and it was this fantastic beautiful system that lifted us that lifted the living world and then together, which, together. yeah and and it, it it's it it connects that's why so in at the science and non-duality conference that's why i sent you the link to that so in 20 minutes i had to take this audience full of non-dual teachers uh like rupert Spearan and people like deepak Deepak Chopra in the audience, and Brian Swim is sitting there, and then there's the guy who discovered dark energy from UCS. He had just spoken before me because it it blends science and the sort of non-dual thing. It's a kind of interesting meeting. It's in mm. San Jose every year, and I had to take them from the mechanistic explanation of how life started, all the way through the spirals that go up to the neuron, neuron, which is the learning system. Which then you get enough neurons, and it creates a a, a conscious system and then up further and what happens at the end of the spiral so you have the start point here the system becomes aware of itself in two ways it can sense that the totality of the body of the current biological world it becomes aware but it also knows where it came from 
and you get this fantastic toroidal awareness thing and I sort of then I dissolve that into like the meditator the, the Alex Gray meditator mm. with the thing and said isn't it this yeah so we can connect hardcore reductionist mechanistic beginnings to this magnificence of emergence and we don't need we have a simple explanation that is totally unifies the whole thing that doesn't detract from any part of it yeah yeah it's one thing okay <laughs> anyway i i feel like two and a half hours ago or whatever it was i sat down to like one of the biggest feasts intellectual feasts i have ever eaten and i'm gonna digest for like a snake that swallowed a pig for the next week or so that this has really been an honor thank you I, thank you chris it's rare that i do one of these podcasts where i feel like i'm witnessing history but it, it may, feels that it way. may be yeah. yeah and it's fresh it's really new and fresh yeah yeah and i love the fact that your ego is not part of this that you're you're transmitting and you're not look at me guy you know you i'm, know? I'm unemployable <laughs> i i I, ha I i can't get a I can't get a tenure-track position. I'm yeah. unemployable, uh, so I, I have no career to wreck <laughs> because I have. I do all these yeah. odd things, yeah. and I figure you know someone's got to let it all hang out and there try to put it together. And yeah, and and if as long as there's, you know, certainly the reductionists. So so it's the liminal dance mm -hmm. that we talked about in the beginning. Mm -hmm. If I can put on the uniform of the reductionist scientist and be their language, they know that the mystics are the ones that bring them the breakthroughs. Mm. They know it. The smart yeah. ones do. The smart ones. Yeah. That most science is, is uh, basically technical lab work. It's, yeah. it's, it's basically lab tech kind of work. And the breakthroughs come from the mystics. So they will accept this kind of a thing. So I'm in rooms next week with Nobelis and sitting in the audience, win the Nobel Prize in Chemistry of certain years, and I actually have to do it in their language and show them a massive system that they would never have seen otherwise. Yeah. That came from, and they don't have to, I call it a thought experiment. Mm -hmm. You know, I invite them into it and give it to them, give it away to them, test it. Here's our first micrographs, here's our first gels. You test it, and then a room full of, you know, people that are more on the mystical side and the magical side try to bring here's a here's a mechanistic thing that actually can explain everything that you don't you, you can you cannot in a sense like religion has corrupted the mystical experience like the the initial openings of human beings maybe we can sort of let all that go and just just in a sense be in awe of what made us and, 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 and of the natural world before we kind of replace it all. Mm. And, and that's the sort of path that will create that thin layer of humanity that rides on top of the crystal of the lock-in mm. that still keeps that passion alive, that dream alive for bigger understandings as the crystal grows in thickness and, and this, it contains more and more billions of people. And so there's this thin layer that's still there. And given the fact that your vision seems to include this, in, this growth of lock, locked in 
people who are enslaved in in most senses of the word, mm. I guess, yeah, and, like, and blinded, and they're they're being they're they're being um, raised like chickens yeah. in cages. Yeah, we thought communism was bad, but yeah, yeah. So I, I mean, when you look at this progression, you you seem to me to be like very hopeful and excited and and optimistic. And yet, if I understand your vision properly, you're not, you don't really see the growth, this thing that's growing is 99.9% yeah. suffering. So here's the answer why I have hope. Because I think that both things are necessary to do the great act. And the great act is for the biosphere to have a future. For some reason, through our evolutionary, by being co-evolved with tree snakes, where we learn how to see patterns as they were hunting us on the tree limb at dawn, I think that's that was the primary driver to give us binocular color and where we can see screens. I think it came from 60 million years of tree snake uh, co-evolution because it was direct. Snap you down if you don't recognize that pattern. And human babies are terrified of yeah. images of snakes. Right, so that's yeah. hardwired. So that is the thing that coiled around us is now called around us smartphones and screens and everything it's like but it's the thing that evolved us at the same time so the fact that we can see the pattern realize it's danger it's like going to take all of us you know all of the colony has to move now because one of them got smart like those little patterns of squares that's not just a trippy thing while i'm sucking my tree sap and getting high on sugar my mind is like oh that's danger so that happened trillions and trillions and trillions of times, you know, mm. going out on the limb to get that nut or that high sugar thing. This is prosimian evolution from 90 million years ago, right? The tree snake was waiting, especially after the Chichlub impact when there was no uh, dinosaur predators. <clears throat> tree snakes were it, mm. right? So from 65 million years to Artipithecus, like closer when we became forest floor walkers, it was all tree snake driven predation. Hmm. So technology is the serpent, but we made it, but it's evolving us. Yeah. So I think that that, if you look back that 90 million years and you're like, this is why we can do screens, this is why I drive cars, this is why we have these incredible brains, it's because of that evolutionary driver and that evolutionary driver is still built in, but we made our own serpent and the fake news and like it's eating us, right? But it, it can push us and evolve us. So a few, a percentage of us are going to jump and not get snapped down. And we're going to keep evolving ahead of that force. And so it seems to me that this massive driver, so the crystal is contained, but then there's this crazies that are sort of on the outside of the crystal, but they're using the energy of the crystal. They're using the smartphones and, and the medical care and whatever fantastic futuristic things. But somehow they're staying, they're, they're not entirely consumed or co and coiled by it. And they are pulling the evolution forward. Now, it may be the, the crazy app developer or the Silicon Valley kind of crazies, but they create the lock-in too. So all this, I think, is necessary for doing the great act, which is allowing the biosphere a, a forward path. And that sometimes I have this conversation like I get into a state where I have a conversation with the energy system that I can feel its desperation. I said, I feel your, I look at it. I said, I feel your desperation. I know how rare we are. 
And what I do say to it, and this is where I think we can start having a conversation. So I feel, I know your desperation. I know that this planet is a tomb. It's a womb, but it's a tomb. And how rare this is. And the force of life or whatever it is, is pushing through us. Survival, 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 because the stakes are getting higher. But I said, there are beings that are suffering. They're suffering beings in this force. And we have a say. We have a freaking say in this whole process, this whole push. So that's that's some of the, the dialogue that I think, and this is where the healing arts come in. So what, we're not just tools of the process. We're not just tools of the process. We have a say. And in any, any medicine work, the best work is always done when you make a contract yeah. with an agreement. So your partner is one of the avatars of going into the crystal and finding the trapped enslaved people or the traumatized people and liberating them. So that's in a sense the result, the, the human need, the human heartfelt need to heal ourselves and to, to not be completely traumatized by this incredible process. And that in two to three hundred years, four hundred years will pop out. In four, 400 years, we need that kind of a runway. So there's this period coming and then we're going to pop out and we're, we're going to be uh, off, we're gonna be spread everywhere. And when, when we spread, we evolve. So when, you know, when the Marquesans set sail and they found Hawaii, they created new cultures and new things and we have to do this. And so when we're, we're, mm. we're spread, and now the diversity happens and, mm, and it, yeah, so the pressure the pressure yeah. on this earth is going to be intense in yeah. the next three to four hundred years and then we're going to do this and that's going to carry life into the cosmos so right. like the manic male carried mitochondrial eve's daughter and her genes around the world to spread her genes we're going to carry the the brilliant creation of complex life of the biosphere we're going to carry it with us and we're going to sit in 500 years, we're going to sit and say, what a relief. We made it through the neck down. We made it through where the species is almost self-immolating mm -hmm. psychologically as well as it's just intense. And then we it opened and mm -hmm. it'll be seen as the great opening. And then there will be worlds everywhere. And then we can try all our experiments. But life will have, we'll have done the committed act of taking the incredible rarity of our existence and giving it to the future and, and allowing complex life, you know, crocodiles and cats or whatever evolves yeah. can go forward yeah. uh, for as it has an infinite path, you know, and we can kind of go to our rest realizing we've actually done something important. We've done something with this gift. It's been a little over three hours since you started this podcast three hours of your life. I hope you consider them well spent. I certainly do. Um, that was one of the more fascinating conversations I think I've ever had. And I hope to um, meet up with Bruce again and continue the friendship and continue the conversation and maybe even record it. Uh, if you enjoyed that and consider it a worthwhile use of your time, maybe you'll consider supporting this podcast on Patreon I don't sell things other than T-shirts. Keep my mom busy. Uh, sure, design T-shirts. 
Um, but uh, no ads. So the only thing that keeps this podcast running is your generosity. Thank you to the 850 or so people who are supporting the podcast on Patreon. There's some bonus material, the Romas and Tomas, none of which I, neither of which I've done recently, but I'm going to do one this afternoon, actually. Uh, those are available to the Patreon subscribers. So um, thank you very much for your support. You can also uh, support the podcast by writing reviews on iTunes, telling your friends, and so on and so forth. Um, I also have an Amazon affiliate link on my web page. Uh, you'll see on the right banner. Amazon does not support this podcast directly, and I don't want anyone to misunderstand. I'm just announcing that there is an Amazon affiliate link there that you can click on, and a small percentage of what you spend at Amazon will kick back into my coffers for non-podcast-related expenses. So thank you for that form of support as well. Uh, let's see. I have a paper here. I used to do the pre-canned outro, but now I'm doing them live, kind of live. It's live for me anyway. Uh, let's see. What else do I want to say? Intro. The intro music is by Basin and Range. The song is called Bright Side of the Sun. You can check them out at basinandrangeband.com. There's a Reddit uh, subreddit on this podcast. If you do Reddit, I don't know, is Reddit a verb? If you Reddit, it's on there. A couple thousand people talking about episodes, asking for the source of quotes and giving me a hard time and giving each other a hard time, but not too hard. It's a pretty friendly group. So uh, if you want to talk about the podcast, you can join them on Reddit. Just search for Tangentially Speaking. There's also uh, a website for people who want to meet other people nearby who listen to Tangentially Speaking. That's tspeaking.boardhost.com. And it's broken up into states and countries. Find your location and see if there's anyone nearby who uh, you can get together with. Of course, you can order T-shirts from my mom, Julie. Um, those shirts are all supplied by Sure Design T-shirts. And they have a wide range of yoga pants and hippie wear. Uh, and if you use the discount code CTD, Civilized to Death, you get 20% off your order. And one more thing I wanted to mention is that the Tangentially Reading books are available on Amazon as of now. So if you didn't get a pre-order in and you'd like a copy of Tangentially Reading, uh, you can see that you'll see the link on my website, of course, or you can just go to Amazon, however you get there normally, and search Tangentially Reading and you'll see it there. It's a it, it'll it's print on demand. They print them all over the world. So wherever you are, uh, they'll send it to you at your normal Amazon shipping rate. And uh, it's a pretty, pretty cool book. It's got uh, Duncan and Joe Rogan and uh, all sorts of interesting conversations that I've had uh, with folks over the years. So I hope you'll order that and let me know what you think of it. Leave a review on the Amazon page because that helps other people feel more confident in ordering it. Much appreciated. I'm going to play you out, as I always do, with Smoke Alarm by the great Carsey Blanton. This time, let's go with the, the album version, as opposed to the acoustic version I normally play. This is from her album called Idiot Heart, I believe it is. Uh, and the song is Smoke Alarm. 
And the lesson is to carpe fucking DM because you're going to die one day. Here's to you, Justin and Bennett. Baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're gonna die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time? Think about your reputation. Smoke alarms will dance into the ground.